0: Our guest today is Randy Gallistel. He is an emeritus professor of psychology at Rutgers University, studying the cellular substrate of learning and memory. He is one of the biggest critics of the mainstream hypothesis that synaptic plasticity is the neurobiological basis of memory and has argued for the cell intrinsic hypothesis of memory storage, the idea that memory is stored in intracellular molecules. Can we start by talking about the concept of a memory. What is memory?
1: Yeah, so uh, <laughs> that's a great opening question since uh, in many ways, that's what I'm that's the my central concern. Uh, I'm going to give you it's easy to give a very simple answer to that, but then, Particularly when talking to undergraduates, that needs to be unpacked a bit. Memory is the medium by which the past communicates with the future. Uh, a med- I mean, medium in the sense of um, a, the telephone, right, or internet uh, or email, right. Uh, communication always involves a, a medium of some kind, um, and mem- and memory is the is the medium the physically realized mechanism in brains by which uh, what you've learned in the past is communicated to the future. So, and because you're gonna need that information in the future to behave. Uh, when you talk, right, you are constantly summoning from memory words that you learned years ago. Uh, so, um, So it's your memory that has communicated that information to you. Now, running throughout all my remarks will be information theory. Uh, And uh, anyone who's seriously interested in memory has to become familiar with information theory. So let me say a little bit about that. Um, When I use information in this talk, I don't mean the way it's often, 99.99% of the time, when someone, including virtually all neuroscientists, say information, they mean some completely intuitive um, uh, thing. It's, you know, it's usually, as with all such intuitions, it's more or less impossible to know what they actually mean um, because they don't know themselves. But um, what perhaps some of your listeners wouldn't know is that. In 1948, a communications engineer at uh, uh, at the Bell Laboratories named Claude Shannon uh, wrote a famous paper uh, that uh, made information a central scientific uh, concept um, uh, by showing how to measure information. So this paper suddenly made information a part of physics. And of course, information in Shannon's sense is a fundamental quantity in uh, modern communication technology. When you go, uh, when you look at uh, how big a file is that you're contemplating sending on the internet, it says one megabyte, right? Well, (laughs) that's that's Shannon's measure of uh, the amount of information in that file, right? So when I talk about information, I mean Shannon information, a measurable uh, physical quantity. Um, that, it, and it is, those measurements describe <clears throat> how much information is being communicated, right? Um, so, uh, so when I say the past communicates to the future, uh, something, uh, This is a quantifiable something, right? This is not a vague assertion. Now, a second really important point is to understand the very intimate connection between communication and computation. It may seem otherwise a little odd that I begin by defining memory in communication terms, but the uh, very early in the first few pages of the standard textbook, the sort of Bible of information theory, uh, a book by uh, authors Cover and Thomas. Uh, They write that uh, uh, um, computation is communication limited and communication is computation limited. And that's a profound truth. Um, For example, the fact that we can sit here and chat with video, no less, (laughs) <laughs> is, is a direct consequence of Shannon's some of the things that Shannon established in that paper and the famous proofs that he gave in that paper. Because our ability to do this depends upon um, the ability of the computers that we're talking through to take the audio and visual signals and through very fancy computations, um, radically reduce the amount of information in them because 99.9% of that information isn't actually necessary to communicate both the audio and the visual, as we understand from Shannon's work. So these compression algorithms are very intense computations and the uh, modern internet communication depends fundamentally on the ability of these algorithms to very rapidly compress these data streams that are coming in to the computer. Um, so it's important to understand that background, which I suspect that um, many of your listeners may not uh, understand. All right, so now that I've uh, got that out of the way, why is memory so important in computation? Uh, well, I've already basically told you that, right? Because um, behavior, uh, so I'm a big advocate of the computational theory of mind, which is the central doctrine in cognitive science, uh, mainline cognitive science, that is, as opposed to connectionism. Actually, even the connectionists embrace it, but they think they can uh, advance some uh, theory of computation that is different from what underlies modern technology. <clears throat> um, So then, so why is this important? Well, because as I've already said, the behavior that you or I or any animal down to the level of an insect is generating at any given moment depends upon information, some of which is coming in as the behavior is being generated, right? As they're seeing the world, hearing the world, smelling the world but a lot of the behavior they're generated depends on information that they acquired in the quite distant past, right? Um, And without a memory, that's not possible, right? So in any computing machine, this ability to um, carry information forward until such time as it is required in some behavior um, is fundamental to how the machine works. And that means it's fundamental to how the brain works. Um, The uh, so um, another, now the next sentence in the answer to your very good question, again, we'll need some unpacking. But once you've had it unpacked, the sentence itself captures the key idea. So This carrying forward of information in time communicating the communication from the past to the future makes possible the temporally unbounded composition of functions. (laughs) Now, I dare say that most of your leaders have no idea what that means, but let me explain. (laughs) (laughs) Because it's what if you understand what that means, you understand what computation is basically about and what your computer and your iPhone and even your toaster is basically doing these days. So a function is a very general idea at the foundation of mathematics. But it's like most ideas at the foundation of mathematics, it's a very simple idea. If you take calculus, they will have taught you about functions. But you may not have understood it. So (laughs) because often very simple ideas are very hard to understand, at least in their full implications. So a function is simply a mapping. Uh, It takes it's a little box, if you like, that takes an input of some kind and produces an output. (laughs) To a first approximation, that's what a function is. There are some slightly more technical um, things, but I won't go into them. Okay, so for example, addition is a function, right? They didn't tell you that in elementary school when you were learning to add, but (laughs) they were teaching you how to perform a function, right? So what is this function? Well, you give this function two numbers, five and three, (laughs) and the function spits out eight, (laughs) okay? So that's a function. <laughs> multiplication is another function, right? You give multiplication the same two numbers, five and three, and it spits out a different answer, 15. <laughs> okay, so that's what functions are, right? Um, and if you are learning a computer language and anybody your age who isn't learning to program a computer will probably regret it in later life uh, because it's incredibly valuable and incredibly diverse skill in diverse um, you know in in an incredibly wide range of occupations but for sure any scientist who can't program a computer these days is uh, under some pretty severe handicap when face to face with all the young guys like you who most of whom can, (laughs) Uh, so a a programming language is just a big library of functions, right, and of which the arithmetic functions are the most elementary and obvious ones, right? And when you're writing a program, what you're doing is said, well, first do this function to these inputs and store the output. And then do the next function, that's the second line of code in your program, to the output stored in memory and store the output that you get from doing that and, and so on and so on and so on, right? So, <laughs> so underlying Microsoft Word is a, a, a string of, uh, <laughs> I don't know, probably, a hundred thousand functions, right? <laughs> then maybe, maybe I'm underestimating. It might be a million functions, right? But it's all just first do this, store the output. Now take the stored output and do this. Of course, you don't always take the output from the immediately preceding function. Now, many of these functions will say, okay, now go back to the output that you stored in the We're now 50,000 lines long in this code, right? So we're at the 50,000th function. And for that function, you say, there's an output that we generated back in the second function and an output that we generated in the 25th function and an output that we generated in the nine, you know, go get all those outputs and do X and store that output. Okay, so that's what computation is about, right? So that you need to have you need to understand computation at that level of abstraction, um, right? So, what I've just been describing is the composition of functions. What what that simply means is you take the out- output from one function and use it as the input to another function. It's a really simple idea. Um, uh, okay, so if you think about it, you think, oh, wait, wait a second. The way programs work, I mean, what makes it possible to do that is memory. That is it, because it's in memory where you store the output from one function until it's needed as the input to another function. And I, I italicize until, because until can be 50 years from now. Right? <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, modern computation is routinely drawing on information stored in memory that, was, that has been <laughs> passed from one memory to another ever since computers uh, became a part of modern life, right? Uh, and um, and so if you don't have memory, then every function has to pass its output directly to the next function, right? So computation is a prisoner of time, right? Uh, you can only, <laughs> time now becomes your huge enemy, right? Because you've got <laughs> basically uh, do it all, everything now. Well, you can't do everything now. Um, okay, so memory liberates computation from the tyri- uh, tyranny of time. Now you don't have to do it now. You can do it later when whenever you need to do it.
0: Okay, so memory is the storage of information that makes it makes the information accessible to computation. These functions um when you need it yep perfect okay
1: you passed that that question on the
0: (laughs) (laughs) so in terms of memory storage and retrieval do you think that there are general fundamental um mechanisms for that that all systems with uh, physically implementing memory would have to use.
1: oh, for sure. And again, for anyone who has any physical understanding of computers, this is not even remotely debatable um, because the in, <laughs> my advantage would be your advantage over me is you're young. but my advantage <laughs> is, Uh I'm old and I have lived through basically the entire history of the emergence of modern computers. (laughs) And the biggest biggest single important thing, so you've probably heard of Moore's Law, right? Which which has basically been true for 50 years, which is unbelievable. Um, And uh, (laughs) very steadily it says, well, computation keeps getting better. Surprisingly rapidly. Why? Because it it keeps getting more efficient in every possible meaning of the term efficient. Right? So when is a tool efficient? Well, when it's small <laughs> and takes very little energy and um, and um, lasts a long time and is readily available and so on. Um, And the extent to which that has been happening with the physical realization of computation is just mind-boggling. When I was older than you are, um, one of my colleagues, and I was already an assistant professor, one of uh, my colleagues bought a PDP-8, which in those days was the, it was the biggest computer uh, a scientist could aspire to own. Um, and for this, he had to buy a hard disk. That hard disk was, you can't see this, but it was as big around as uh, what? as a large serving platter. Okay, that is, you could just barely encompass this disk with your arms. That disk cost him uh, twelve hundred dollars, and these were in nineteen sixty dollars, right? So this was the equivalent of twelve thousand dollars today, right? It was a major expenditure, right? And that disk held one megabyte. <laughs> We were in awe. (laughs) We we thought one megabyte was an almost unimaginable amount of memory. (laughs) We we could hardly believe that there was a a device that held one megabyte of information. Okay, so this uh, this is just audio, so I can't hold up for your viewers to see the one terabyte uh, backup disk that I just bought. it's it's much smaller than the size of my wallet, right? It's it's nearer to the size of a stick of chewing gum than it is to the size of my wallet, right? <laughs> and, and, and it holds one terabyte, right? I, I, you know, it's, I, I haven't figured out the ratio of a terabyte to a megabyte, but we're talking like a hundred trillion, right? Um, the... Uh, so that's just an indication. Uh, and, and of course, that's absolutely central to modern uh, computation, right? Our ability to talk to each other uh, through our computers um, wouldn't exist if, uh, if memory took up the amount of room it did in 1960, right? Um, so efficiency is absolutely essential. And there are several aspects to it. Um, A good memory, uh, and, and again, they're all expressed in physical terms. It has to be compact. Well, what do we mean by compact? Well, here again, information theory is essential to understanding what we mean, right? We couldn't talk about it being compact if we couldn't measure information. But of course now, thanks to Shannon, we can. And so when we say it's compact, we mean, well, how many bits can you put in one cubic micron? Right, because these days it's in microns that we measure uh, the physically relevant parts of computers, so a micron is, uh, is one, um, uh, one millionth of, it's a 1,000 of a 1,000. Anyway, it's a very, you know, it's at the limit of what you can see in a microscope. So when you say compact, the question is, well, how many bits can you put in a cubic micron? And the, what we're gonna, when we put information in, we're putting in symbols, we're putting in strings of bits. And those those are symbols, like a byte is eight bits, right? So a byte is a symbol for a word, for example, or for a letter rather, not for a word. Um, so then the question is, how cheaply, uh, how cheap is it? How much energy does it cost in order to put, um, um, some specified number of bits into the memory device. Right. Well, in biology, the basic unit of, of energy is an ATP. Whenever in, um, a biological thing does something that requires energy, it hydrolyzes, not, this is a slight overgeneralization, but to a first approximation, it hydrolyzes an ATP. Now for me to talk, you, and, for you and I to talk, we're hydrolyzing um, millions, billions of ATPs every moment. So, uh, so this is a very small unit of energy, right? Uh, but it's the relevant union, uh, unit in saying, okay, how much does it cost us energetically, right? To uh, put eight bits in this? How many ATPs does the system have to hydrolyze in order to put eight bits into memory. So that's another measure of uh, efficiency, energetic efficiency. Another thing is the memory must be addressable. There's no point in putting something into memory if you can't find it. Believe me, by the time you get to be my age, you're painfully aware of this. Uh, Half the things in your memory you can't find. For that matter, half the things on my computer I can't find. It's a search algorithm doesn't work properly. Um, so uh, finding things in a computer device is the operation of addressing them. So the memory must be addressable. It must be there. Must be something that enables you to find it. <clears throat> and it has to be rapidly accessible. Right? You don't have to say, "Oh, I'll get back to you in an hour." Right? Um, it has to be thermodynamically stable. Right? That is, uh, you don't want it to evaporate while it's there in memory. And uh, finally, uh, it has to be in a form such that you can pass it into the functions I talked about, right, yeah, there has to be a clear answer to, okay, there's the information and there's another piece of information and they're both numbers, so how do I add them, right? How do I get them and are they in a physical form that we know how to apply the addition operation? Those are all essential features of any memory.
0: So those are uh, any physical system implementing memory has to, has to fulfill all of those requirements. And so the brain must also do all of that. Yeah. Um, could you maybe walk us through historically, how have we thought about the, um, how the brain um, solves all of this? So, <laughs> yes,
1: okay. Now we're on very interesting ground because the answer is we haven't thought about it. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, that is, <laughs> if you ask, a neurosi- if you ask a connectionist cognitive scientist or a behaviorist psychologist or a neuro or all but a tiny fraction of neuroscientists, if you ask them that question, they won't give you an answer. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's, um, online you can find a talk I gave at Harvard, oh, five or six years ago now uh, in which a very well-known neuroscientist was uh, discussing um, and uh, it's all on YouTube and uh, uh, at, at, at the end of my I was advocating the kinds of radical ideas that uh, I think led you to think I would be an interesting person to interview and At the end of my talk, I said, okay, John, uh, when you get up to give your discussion of this nonsense that I've been speaking, uh, I hope you will answer the following question. How do you store a number in a plastic synapse? Because I knew he was going to be arguing for the usual view that it's plastic synapses. And he got up and gave a lengthy discussion in which he did not mention and did not answer that question. So this was unusual in that I got a rebuttal. Uh, I got to speak again. And I said, hey, John, apparently you didn't hear me. You didn't answer my question. So I'm gonna give you now a second chance. How do you store a number in a plastic synapse? (laughs) And he stood up, and he refused to answer the question. And people began to laugh. (laughs) So, okay. So keep in mind, this is a guy who's been thinking as as a neuroscientist about memory. He was roughly, he's my age, Uh, dead now, in fact. Uh, (laughs) And he didn't have an answer to this question, right? Uh, And that's because he'd been thinking about memory in associative terms which at least some of the faculty there at Oxford would probably still be teaching you. Um, And uh, when you think about memory that way, you don't think about storing information. It's it's not a question that you think you have to answer. It's not part of the theory (laughs) because associative bonds do not store information. And plastic synapses are just the neurobiologist hypothesis about what they think is the physical basis of an associative bond. So so, um, all the questions that you asked your question was, well, so what's the traditional answer? And the answer to that question is, traditionally there is no answer. And this emerged again uh, in a very fairly recent, much more recent debate I had with, I think I can name him, uh, um, Jean-Pierre Jeanjeu, who's a very famous uh, molecular biologist and neuroscientist in France. Um, and uh, um, a, a mutual friend of ours uh, arranged for us to debate each other in, uh, in Europe. And uh, <clears throat> We both made, there was a format, uh, we would both make presentations, and there was a moderator who would sort of discipline the the debate. Um, But Jean Pierre was used to debating cognitive scientists who didn't talk about the problem in physical terms. And he was completely unprepared to rebut my but I was just telling you about the essential features of um, a memory because they were all the kinds of things that a biophysicist would be interested in, not a cognitive scientist, right? How many ATPs do you have to hydrolyze to right? I was talking in his territory, right? And and it was like, when you expect an attack from the front, then you get attacked from the rear, right? Um, He was so angry afterwards that he refused to allow the debate to be uploaded to YouTube. (laughs) 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 Okay, so again, he was angry because these, he had no answers. These questions have never been raised.
0: Mm. Mm. Right, Could we go back a bit further historically? What is synaptic plasticity and how has that, why has that been linked to memory?
1: Well, um, a plastic synapse, it's it's what neurobiologists think is the physical realization of uh, an associative bond. So an associative bond historically is a non-physical concept, just like a gene, right? I don't mean non-physical in the sense that people didn't think it had a physical realization. They just didn't know what the physical realization was. Actually, if you go back to the empiricist philosophers, they were dualists. So at least some of them actually probably didn't think it had a physical realization. But since they all knew that they had no clue what the physical realization might be, because even beginning to think about what the mind might look like as a machine was very hard to do, um, they just didn't worry about that question, right? And similarly, the geneticists, you know, in 1920, they had no clue what a physical gene might look like, and many biochemists didn't think there were such things because that kind of what genes genes had properties that seemed to most biochemists uh, you know mystical. Um, they made copies of themselves, right? <laughs> biochemists said, "Look, molecules don't make copies of themselves, right? What are you talking about? It's nonsense, <laughs> right?" Um, so, um, but um, neurobiologists, uh, the, the associative bond was always conceived of as the mechanism, whatever it might be physically speaking in the mind or brain that enabled one thought to trigger another thought. Um, so it, one thought excited another thought, right? And then people had a kind of This was pre-telegraphic, but they had a kind of telegraphic idea. Well, there must be a conductive link between the the first thought and the second thought that it excites. Uh So these philosophers and this all goes all the way back to Aristotle, like most intuitive ideas in science. Um, And... uh, so if you ask, well, what does it explain? Well, it explains the um, phenomenology of uh, our internal thought processes, right? If we reflect, we say, well, you know, what goes on in my mind? Well, I, you know, I think one thing, then boom, I'm thinking something else, right? I mean, James Joyce captured this in Ulysses, right? <laughs> he puts you inside uh, uh, Bloom's mind, right, and. And revealed all the chaos that goes on in our thought processes. Right, one moment you're thinking about where's the subway entrance, and then next moment you're thinking about how you lost your virginity, and so on. And, you know, it's total, it's total chaos in there, right? Uh, well, yeah. the associative theory was oh. me- was meant to uh, was yeah, meant sure. to explain that. I'll ask you later. Uh, okay. um, yeah. Now. So it wasn't, so the the important point to realize here is that the associative bond historically was never imagined to store information. First of all, because Aristotle and Locke and Hume and Berkeley and all the famous uh, association of philosophers knew nothing about information, right? Keep in mind, information has only been a respectable scientific concept since 1948. But it has spread throughout the sciences since 1948, right? It's everywhere in physics these days, right? It's one of the big concerns about black holes, is information destroyed in black holes or not, right? Um, Because it's very closely connected to entropy in physics, which is one of the foundational concepts in uh, in physics. All right, so uh, a plastic synapse is just an associative bond, right? Uh, Now the synapse itself is the connection between two neurons and uh, uh, our concept of the synapse uh, was established by Sir Charles Sherrington more than um, 120 years ago. Um, And his ideas about synapse, which were largely derived from his behavioral studies, something that's been lost sight of by neuroscientists, have almost entirely proven true, um, with a few exceptions. And so almost as soon as Sherrington suggested, or elaborated a concept of the synapse, others began to say, because associative ideas have been with us ever since Aristotle, they said, ah, I see. So. Yeah, there are synapses and some of them are genetically specified, but others of them must be modifiable by experience, right? So a plastic synapse, the word plastic means modifiable by experience, right? So so a plastic synapse is just a synapse which transmits a signal from one neuron to the other chemically, that you can modify it so that in transmitting the signal, you either amplify the signal or, or you reverse the sign of the signal, or you deamplify the signal. That's what a plastic synapse is. And the idea is that both the sign and the amplification factor, which is called the weight in a connectionist model, uh, those are determined by experience through some, rule, like, say, backpropagation, which you may have heard of.
0: Mm, right. And this idea really took off in, like, 1970s when Luz and Lomo discovered, like, a physical mechanism. Exactly. That, like, they
1: creation. discovered a modifiable synapse and they said, we've found the foundation <laughs> of memory. Right? <laughs> and all the rest of the neuroscientific community piled on. And they said, "Oh, yes, yes. We always knew association was true. Aristotle was right. Locke was right, Hume was right. Berkeley was right. All our intuitions about how the mind works, they were all right, and now we have scientific proof."
0: Hmm. And so um, everyone began to jump on it and try to look for synaptic plasticity um, in learning and memory tasks.) Yes, um, so, I, I think this was from Richard Morris' group. He they in the 2000s they uh, they had four criteria that would be met if the synaptic plasticity hypothesis uh, was true. And so that was like detectability. If you uh, learn something, you should detect synaptic plasticity. And there's anti-integrate intervention. If you block synaptic plus every block LTP, then you get. Um, then you block learning and memory and then retrograde intervention. If you um, have learning and memory and then you block the LT, and then you interfere with the synapse, then you lose the memory and mimicry, which is if you um, instantiate the same synaptic weights, then you should get the same memory. So obviously mimicry is like the strongest evidence, but it hasn't been done yet. Um, Most of the experiments have been in um, the detectability side, so showing that um after learning a memory, you see this LTP. Um, but obviously that's quite weak because it's like a correlational; it doesn't show that it's important. And so, and the in and retrograde intervention is where there's a lot of controversial um experiments there. So, could we maybe start by steel manning the this hypothesis first? Um, has there been any experiments what do you think are the strongest evidences for this hypothesis has there been any experiments where like out of the vast literature where that made you go like okay maybe there is something going for it
1: <laughs> yes well i've all i also debated richard morris so within a month or two of uh of um he, he's a, a much more even keel. He didn't get angry he, he, like Jean Pierre. He thought my arguments were outrageous, but uh, he uh, uh, but he uh, kept his temper and uh, <laughs> and it was a, a, a perfectly amicable debate. Uh, some of the other uh, people in the room <laughs> who share his commitments, I think, were considerably angrier than he was. Um, but they would all be, even Richard would, I think, be pretty angry at what I'm about to answer. So, uh, because in that criteria, as far as I'm concerned, they didn't list the only, the single criterion that is by far the most important, and which if the, that criterion isn't satisfied, you don't even have a theory, right? So. So all the other criteria are irrelevant if the first criterion isn't satisfied. And I've already told you what the first criterion is. <laughs> and, and I raised it with Richard. I said, Richard, how do you store a number in a synapse? <laughs> and like, and like, the, like John, he didn't have an answer. <laughs> um, well, if, by my lights, if you advance what you claim is a theory of memory, and you have no answer to that question then the theory isn't even wrong it it, it isn't uh, it's like a team that isn't yet ready to go on the field right it isn't it isn't ready to be tested in the ordinary experimental way because if you can't explain how information is stored then you don't actually have a theory of memory so then it's a waste of time to ask well do does uh, do are there other things that can be adduced as supporting this theory, right? Because it, it isn't yet ready to go on the field. It isn't actually a theory of memory. So it isn't even wrong. That will make people ang- angry because that's basically the biggest insult that you can <laughs> apply to, to a theory in science <laughs> is to say that it isn't even wrong. <laughs>
0: And you talk about the number question. So number coding is fundamental to you because it has to be able to represent those numbers in order to perform computations. Is that right? Yeah, for sure.
1: And because we store quantities all the time. We don't think about Mm -hmm. this um, because quantities are so, we take them so for granted, right? But you know how long it takes you to do various things, right? (laughs) And... If you stop and think about it, you realize that your knowledge of how long it's gonna take you to do X, uh, you draw on that throughout every day, right? And that's all acquired knowledge, right? And, And you also know how distances, I'm not talking about the distance to Moscow, although you also have some idea about that, right? But you know how far it is, roughly, from where you are now to your home, right? And how far it is from there to London, and how far it is from there to the grocery store and to the dry cleaners, and so on, huh? Um, and these are all, if you say, yeah, I know all that. So how does a machine store that? Those are numbers. <laughs> Right? Those are all numbers, (laughs) and in case you don't know it, everything in a computer is numbers, right? When your iPhone takes a picture, what does it do? It converts the image into a huge number of numbers, (laughs) and then it, well, and then it asks you. Uh, well, no, if you're going to email it, it says, "Hey, boss, <laughs> you really want me to send the whole bunch of numbers? Right? It's going to be huge, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Or you know, I can send an image that no one will be able to tell uh, without blowing it up a hundred times. From the uh, image that uh, I just took, I can send it with uh, ten times or hundred times fewer numbers." Uh, which will cost you less, less, uh, right? So you really want to send this uh, the full image to your buddy via text? And generally, the answer is no. It's a waste of time. It's hugely inefficient, right? Well, again, all of that is uh, illustrating what I told you about cover. You know, communication is uh, is computation uh, dependent, and uh, and computation is communication dependent. Um, So the, uh, uh, so memory is full of numbers. And in fact, by my lights, as in a modern computer, everything else in memory is actually numbers. When you dig down uh, and you say, well, what, what are the primitives and the symbols? All the, they're all numbers. Because one of the things we've learned from modern technology is everything that we know how to represent in any way whatsoever we now represent in a computer and everything represented in a computer is represented by numbers. Uh, um, So uh, down, and I think the same must be true for the brain. So So how do you store a number in X where X is somebody's theory about what the medium of memory is, is the most basic question you can ask. If they can't answer Mm -hmm. that question, they don't have a theory of memory and therefore there's no point in discussing the evidence.
0: Is like declarative memory also stored in numbers? So like I have a memory of uh, me eating breakfast this morning. So how, like, where where are the numbers? Yeah, Yeah,
1: so that's a great question. Let's boil it down. Let's ask, okay. So what time did you eat breakfast?
0: um 9 a.m
1: yeah there we go okay that's a number right (laughs) okay where did you eat breakfast
0: in my room
1: yeah in your room but if we were to make it if we wanted to sort of um suppose we were making a computerized uh, record of your uh day right we would need a the room plan for you we would need the building plan the floor plan for your room right Uh, for it contains your room we would need the city plan that contains the building right we would all right um uh, okay and so you would if i and and so and then i ask you okay uh uh what did
0: you eat a banana
1: (laughs) yeah a banana okay so again, how do we represent a banana? Well, it depends on for what purpose. But uh, a nutritionist would uh, you know give its chemical composition, but that's all numbers, right? Um, a physical chemist would wanna, would want to know the density and, uh, and the color of the skin and so on. Was it a ripe banana or a green banana and so on. You know, color. We've one of the few really great quantitative insights in psychology is that color is reducible to three numbers. Not because color, not color physically speaking, but because brains and our brains only encode color with three numbers, right? Mm-hmm. So regardless of what the spectrum actually is, it's going to be represented in your brain by three numbers. Okay, so, okay. so you have to keep in mind, okay, so deep down, it's all numbers that's what modern science is all about (laughs) and modern technology.
0: It's very interesting. These numbers bind together in a way that is like a seamless sort of scene that I remember in my head.
1: Yes, it is. It's absolutely fascinating indeed. (laughs) And keep in mind, we still don't understand how the brain processes those numbers, okay? So, um, and that's relevant. Oh, I'm not gonna go there. Um, That'll wander too far afield. But how it is that you're able to abstract from your... So first of all, your visual system is almost certainly like your iPhone camera in that the first thing it does is compress the image, right? Uh, And for the exact same reasons, Uh, uh, you can throw away, uh, this is because images are hugely redundant. If you know what this pixel looks like, chances are the pixel next to it looks almost the same. So the same numbers that represent this pixel will also represent the pixel next to it, right? That's what Shannon's insight, that's what image compression is all about, is that it says, look, redundancy in information theory means that you don't need to store all those numbers you can preserve the information and get rid of most of the numbers right that's what uh, compression is all about and your your brain almost certainly understands that because whatever your memory is it it's like that big disc right it, it it it's hugely in the important to compress the information um All right, so we don't understand how the brain compresses the information and we even less understand um, how it pulls out, for example, the shape of things, right? That problem has so far completely defeated modern computer science. I am certain that someday it will be solved, but it certainly has not been solved by deep nets uh and and you don't get this from the modern from the press the the scientific reporters don't understand this um but the the deep net that recognizes a leopard has no clue what the shape of the leopard is actually is <laughs> and this is even true for stop signs right the, <laughs> the the thing that's recognizing the stop it's quote recognizing the stop signs in a you know, in Elon Musk's uh, cars, right? Doesn't actually abstract the shape of the stop sign. It just says, you know, these pixels are stop (laughs) sign-ish. They have the statistical properties of pixels that are coming from a stop sign, right? If you ask it, so is it an octagon? The program would say, oh, what's an octagon? (laughs) Okay, so, so, and the thing is, this makes those programs hackable. You can go out with a little marker and dab stuff on the stop sign that will blow away Elon Musk's uh, stop sign recognizing program <laughs> and in his car, right? And that's a big reason why his engineers are saying, Elon, <laughs> if you put this out there, as you claim you're going to do in the next year, we, we, it will cause accidents that will cause you to be sued out of business. <laughs> so, 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 Because this is totally hackable, and there are malevolent but smart high school students out there who know enough to go out and hack it, and they'll go out and start hacking all the stop signs and our fancy car is going to run through those stop signs and <laughs> obliterate two-year-olds. <laughs> and, and, and the people who sue you are going to say, you knew your engineers knew that this was true. And you went ahead and put the car out there. <laughs> so, so we're going to take away all your billions.
0: <laughs> yeah. So what about uh, semantic memory? So like we store facts as well. Those are also all numbers.
1: So, well, are you familiar with what's called relational databases? <laughs> no. Well, they are one of the things that make search algorithms so uh, powerful on, on your computer. And so, relational databases stores semantic information, it stores uh, a huge number of facts. And it attempts to store the ways in which those facts are connected to each other because facts are interconnected. When we talk about semantic information, we really mean information about how different facts, different quantities are connected to each other, right? Um, And relational databases, which are not remotely as good as our brains, but they're still impressively powerful, um, they, they store semantic information that's the whole engineering task, is to capture semantic information in a relational database. And at the moment, that's the limit of our understanding of how that works, right? And again, since they're far inferior to brains in in this regard, we know that there's a, a lot of engineering still to be done, right? Just like there's a lot of psychology still to be done.
0: Okay, so numbers is... Numbers are fundamental to all of memory. Yes,
1: they are the primitives. The problem is that neuroscientists are very uncomfortable with the whole idea of a symbol or, or the idea that the brain might actually contain symbols because they think of it as a hopelessly vague term. And, and you have to point out and you say, hey, look, we all know, right, the bit dresses bit registers store numbers. (laughs) This is not mysterious, it's not vague. (laughs) We know exactly how it works at every level of analysis, right? (laughs) Okay, guys, you wanna know what a symbol is? A number is a symbol. (laughs) Uh, Why is it a symbol? Because it both refers, right? When I say I have 10 hats, it refers to the set of hats that I own, right? When I say I weigh uh, 200 pounds, right? It refers to my weight. And at the same time, it enters into computational operations, right? Mm. That's the definition of a symbol. Mm. Okay, so you define it and it's clear, it's a perfectly well-defined term and it's absolutely central to modern technology. So it's clearly not a non-physical term neuroscientists, because they have no clue what that might look like in the brain, they're, they're, they just, they just put their hands over their eyes or fingers in their ears, they, they don't wanna go there.
0: So you mentioned computational theory of mind just now. Uh, mm-hmm. And that's, that states that the, the brain operates on symbols. Yes,
1: and the band, brain prefer performs fundamental computational operations on symbols. So I've just defined symbols, right? And uh, earlier I defined some computational operations, addition, multiplication, subtraction, ordering, uh, the uh, the most obvious and and intuitively accessible ones, right? But copying is another absolutely fundamental computational operation, right? Brains are copying, uh, computers are constantly copying stuff into memory, right? Um, The logical uh, operations and or not are even more fundamental because they're actually the foundation of the arithmetic operations. And they're all built into a modern computer. So we have working computing machines and we know how they work and why they work, right? And the computational theory of mind says, well, brains are a computing machine. Now, most, many, most probably neuroscientists don't actually disagree with that, but they would immediately add, but they don't compute the way computers compute. At which point you say, okay, how do they compute, right? Now, the very fact that these same neuroscientists cannot answer how they store a number uh, suggests that they don't really have a complete idea of how these things compute, right? Because they don't have an answer to the fact that brains are full of facts, and that's the most elementary fact about memory, right? Um. But they would cite connectionist models. And they would say, oh, look at deep learning. It recognizes leopards and lions and jackals and faces. Uh, And it can even, up to a point, uh, transcribe uh, verbal input into text, which is true. I use Siri. I dictate to my phone. Uh, But it's, of course, equally true, and every time I dictate, it's painfully obvious that Siri hasn't the faintest idea what I'm talking about. (laughs) So, so yes, uh, this technology has accomplished things, but it doesn't work the way brains work, and the engineers that designed the technology, most of them, the thoughtful ones, know perfectly well that it doesn't work the way brains work.
0: (laughs) Maybe this is a good time to, like, to ask what is connectionism and how does that differ from the computational theory of mind?
1: Connectionism is plastic synapses uh, translated into um, computing machines that don't have memory. Um, and, 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 and don't have um, any built-in structural commitments to the structure of the world. Right? So it's, it's an extreme form of empiricism. The idea is that you can start with a formless machine or a, a machine that has a very limited form. And simply through giving it a bunch of experiences, you will create the structures that enable that machine to uh, act appropriately in the world. Right, That's what empiricism is about. It's an ancient philosophical doctrine. Um, it's one that, um, it divides the cognitive science community. Uh, the, the connectionists are the empiricists and the chompskins are the non-empiricists. Uh, I'm a chompskin, obviously. Um, and um, the empiricists think, you know, the science of the mind is just about figuring out uh, how experience creates associative bonds that enable the mind to behave appropriately. In at least the early stages of um, connectionism, they celebrated the fact that the net didn't actually represent the world. (laughs) It didn't actually represent facts about the world. (laughs) It just behaved appropriately. This is ancient empiricism, Skinner and Hull, who were the, empiric- the famous empiricists in my day in psychology. That was exactly what they thought. Um, this, this is right there in the title of the paper that made Hull famous, which is, the title of the paper was Knowledge and Purpose as Habit Mechanisms. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> that's, that's pretty upfront, right? <laughs> His claim was, that you don't actually know anything. Right? You don't know the distance from, from uh, your room to your lab, right? Or the yes. classroom, yeah. right? You just have a habit that takes you there,
0: mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm.
1: And, and Skinner was even more extreme in this. He, he was actually quoted once saying, knowing the calculus, is simply a matter of giving the correct answers on a calculus example, right? (laughs) Okay, so in their early history of connectionism, they made essentially the same arguments, right? Now, since then, they've kind of backed off that. It's kind of hard to get them to make the same arguments again. But the essential thing one has to understand is that their neural nets do not have a memory. And that they openly confess. Um, um, so and uh, and uh, you know, critics like me say, look, if it if it doesn't have a memory, it isn't really a computing machine, and you're just you're just kidding yourself uh, to to think to pretend that this machine uh, can reasonably uh emulate the mind because the mind has a memory.
0: Right. It um when you say it doesn't have a memory, you mean that all it learns is input-output associations.
1: Exactly.
0: And it ha- cannot perform any computations over what it learned.
1: Ah well that's a difficult um oh there we get into very deep water. <laughs> uh, but um it it certainly cannot Perform uh, very simple computations that even insects perform, and that are known to be foundational to, to the behavior of all of us, human beings included. And one of those is what's called dead reckoning, in in colloquial English, uh, among people who actually navigate, like sailors, like myself, or backcountry skiers, or or uh, People who do orienteering. Do you know what orienteering is?
0: Uh, no. Oh, no, okay. It's like navigating ori- in a...
1: Well, ori- navigation is a huge part of orienteering. Orienteering is you, they take you out to some quasi wilderness area. Um, yeah. Or, or, uh, they, they give you a map.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> they let you study the map for quite a while. <laughs> and then they say, okay. We're going to race from where we are now to and they pick out some point on the map right <laughs> so um it it's a big time test of how well you can read a map how well you can translate between the map and what the terrain you're actually looking at right mm-hmm. how well you can choose routes uh, all the things that go into navigation right mm-hmm. okay so path integration or dead reckoning is the foundation of uh, Navigational abilities in animals, and and also of traditional navigation, and it's technically it's uh, integrating your velocity with respect to time in order to obtain your position with respect to time. Right now, and you know, that sounds pretty fancy, but look, it's really simple. Right? <laughs> if I tell you, look, I've been sailing due east uh, at five knots for two hours. Uh, how far east am I from where I started? <laughs> I hope most of the listeners, uh, if they had a little while to think about, it, would say, hmm, "I would say ten nautical yeah. miles, right?" <laughs> uh, all right, good. Uh, you learned arithmetic in uh, at some point. Um, okay, so that's dead reckoning, right? Basic, well, it's more a little more complicated, but. It's a fascinating computation, but it's totally well understood. It depends fundamentally on memory because you have to keep track of where you are and that's in your memory, right? Moreover, of course, when you find something interesting, oh, there's the pizza parlor, right? Okay, you store, the record, you store your, your coordinates, right? The numbers, the vector uh, that gives your location you copy it into memory because that's the location of the pizza parlor, right? Um, okay, so insects do this all the time, ants and bees. And there's a huge and wonderful literature on it, full of ingenious experiments. Um, and by the way, these same insects take snapshots. They have some kind of iPhone in their brain because yeah. they, they take pictures of what the, what the landmarks that they go by look like and and they store those pictures in their memory along with where they were when they took the picture and what direction they were facing the compass direction in which they were facing those are all numbers right (laughs) the picture is all numbers (laughs) where they were is numbers Uh, the direction in which they're facing is numbers right okay just so we're clear so this goes on in insect brains right i keep challenging the neural net people to, yeah, why don't you do dead reckoning? (laughs) No, no, we're not gonna go there. (laughs) Because it requires a memory. (laughs) And our machine doesn't have a memory. (laughs) There's so much oblivious about this. Many years ago when I was making this argument at a talk, someone came up afterwards and said, I said, there's no way to store a map in a neural net because uh, it doesn't have a memory. Someone came up afterwards and said, don't you know about so-and-so's neural net model that does navigation using a map, you ignoramus? So I said, gee, no, I don't know. Give me the, give me the, the reference, right? So they gave me the reference. As soon as I got home, I looked it up on my computer, got a hold of the PDF. The opening paragraph says, Well, we cannot imagine how you could do navigation without a map. So we're going to provide our neural net with a map. (laughs) And they were very clear about the fact the map is not stored in the neural net. The map isn't, because the map, the neural net has no memory. The map is an external resource that will supply information to the neural net. I mean, you know, there's so much ignorance and um, failure to simply think that goes on even among people who were supposedly serious scientists in this whole <laughs> <Well, laughs> Luckily, I'd, unfortunately, I didn't have the email address of the idiot who came up and <laughs> <laughs> apparently, apparently they don't read the introductory paragraphs of the <laughs> articles <laughs> they cite. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You you mentioned all like these debates with like neuroscientists and you said that they find your arguments outrageous. So like why do they find your like what reasons do they give for finding your arguments outrageous and what do they say in response?
1: So they found them outrageous because they all know um, so it goes back to the criteria that um that Richard uh listed in that publication um i I think he had a co-author anyway um and and of course there's there's nothing wrong with those criteria it's not that those criteria themselves are bad those are very any scientist would say yeah although yeah those are really important Um, those are the you have to have that kind of evidence in order to establish the kind of hypothesis we want to establish Notice my criticism is not that there's anything wrong with those criteria, but that, yeah, but there's a one, (laughs) those criteria ignore the elephant in the room. Namely, does does this hypothesis actually explain the most fundamental thing that has to be explained about memory? Okay, so because the the problem has been formulated by everybody in terms of those criteria and not in terms of my question, right? that's because they were all empiricists, right? Um, They say, but look, there are tens of thousands of publications that provide evidence about these criteria. And you gave a very honest summary and and all of that's true, yeah. I mean, hundreds of millions of dollars have gone into research on on these questions, right? Um, And as you recited, for some of those criteria it looks like the evidence is pretty good for some of them the evidence is not so good there's like almost all science at this stage the evidence is conflicting and there are endless arguments and so on however in areas where they're making serious progress i mean this at any given time in science it's very important to understand that the the leading figures are arguing with each other like crazy and they all think each other, the other guy's crazy, right? But, um, <laughs> and believes all kinds of utterly stupid things, right? And, and so on, that's the way the science that's the way scientists are human and that's the way it works. Uh, however, in the sciences that are making progress, um, <clears throat> those arguments don't go on forever and the story gets better, right? Somebody spins out a story. At first, some people say, oh, that's a great story. And other people say, ah, that story can't possibly be right. But as the evidence builds up and various objections are overcome and so on, the story gets better and better. right? That's been what's happening in molecular biology throughout my lifetime, right? The story gets better, it gets richer. Our understanding gets steadily deeper. Um, The practical applications get um, steadily broader, right? I mean, getting that vaccine in less than a year is a scientific miracle. Uh, And it's all due to the progress that's been made in molecular biology uh, all during my lifetime, right? I mean, I was in high school when Watson and Crick uh, <laughs> published their paper, right? Uh, well, not quite high school, but almost, junior high. <laughs> uh, OK, the, 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 the story about memory, the neurobi- and I'm not the only one who thinks this. I've heard many neuroscientists say the same thing. The synaptic hypothesis, the synaptic plasticity hypothesis story has not been getting better. <laughs> Uh, in the eyes of many, I've heard Sh- uh, Chuck Smith, uh, Smith, I got that right, uh, San Diego, who's a very eminent uh, uh, neurobiologist specializing in the synapse. I've heard him say that, you know, the story is not getting better it's a mess. Um, and um, th- so, so, for some, if you're a skeptic like me, that tells you something, right? <laughs> I say, yeah, the reason the story's not getting better is that you're barking up the wrong tree to begin with, right? <laughs> if there are no raccoons up that tree, you can bark all day long and you're never gonna, <laughs> you're never gonna spook a raccoon because there's none up there, right? You, you've got the fundamentally wrong idea and you cannot, in science, you can never prove something that's fundamentally wrong um so uh
0: yeah that's yeah yeah i mean like back, like david bannerman's group showed that like the hippocampal nmda receptors are like not involved in like uh in in encoding memory but more involved in like disambiguating between competing memories and like more recently I think it was two weeks ago, Thomas Siddhoff's group, like they showed that the LTP in the hippocampus was more important for reward and novelty coding instead of like space representation. And this is the hippocampus, which is traditionally seen to be where <laughs> like where LTP was first discovered and where all of memory should happen. Um, so it's really interesting. But okay, so if synaptic plasticity isn't the cellular substrate of memory, then do you think that it's still involved in the process? Like, what would be the point of synaptic plasticity?
1: Oh, look, uh, yeah, it's, that's actually a great question. Uh, I have a friend and colleague, David Glantzman, who, and, and actually this is beginning to happen. I have another uh, friend who I argue with all the time, uh, Tomas Ryan, who comes out of Tonagawa Lab and one of the leading guys you just cited. When I said that story was a mess, clearly you kind of knew that because you immediately cited articles that illustrate just how big a mess it is. Um, and Thomas would not argue with me for a moment if I said it was a mess. He totally agrees it's a total mess. And in fact, his own research shows that you can make the plastic synapse go away, but the information is still there. <laughs> uh, and a lot of that is coming out of the Tonegawa lab and uh, yeah. Glantzman, who's a former Kandel postdoc. Uh, again, has similar evidence in aplesia right? He makes the synapse, the plastic synapse go away. That is, he he undoes the plasticity, but the memory is still there, right? Mm-hmm. And then he trans- puts it, injects RNA from another aplesia <laughs> Oh, no, behold, it has the memory. Mm, yes. Um, okay, so he agrees with me that the story's a mess, and he also agrees with me what you just said, that okay, the information isn't stored in the plastic synapse. That's progress, because as I've been stressing over and over again, the problem with the hypothesis is uh, that it doesn't explain how you store the information. Okay, if you agree that the information isn't stored in the plastic synapse, that's progress. All right, so both Tomas and um, and uh, Blansman, David at um, UCLA, they say, "But Brandy, you go too far. Uh, we have all this evidence that the plastic synapse is involved somehow, and you just dismiss it." Um, <laughs> I understand they're frustrated. I'm not saying it's not involved somehow. <laughs> That would be ridiculous. It's probably involved somehow. Uh, But I'm just honest about what I think I know or have some ideas about and what I don't. And, And to me, the important thing is that, look, what the important question, the elephant in the room is, how is the information stored? If we have an answer to that question, then we could begin to understand what the role of the plastic synapse might be in maybe accessing the memory, what do I know? Uh, but until, we have, until we're clear about how the information is stored, um, I, I mean, I look at the field and I say, David and Tomas, and they would kind of admit this. i say, look, yeah, it might be involved somehow, but neither you nor I have any idea how it might be involved. So why waste our time talking about it?
0: Right, we don't even know the core of how it's stored.
1: Wait, again, before we knew the DNA, the structure of DNA, it's, it's hard to grasp just how profound this was scientifically mm. because it changed biochemistry beyond recognition. There was no notion of a code in biochemistry prior to Watson and Crick. And now the code is basically the foundation of all of biology, right? (laughs) Including biochemistry. Okay, before we understood that, trying to spin out a theory about how genes actually created you and me, (laughs) you know, bees and ants and biological structure, it was impossible. You, you, you didn't know where the narrative should... I mean, scientific theories are narratives, and until you knew what the molecular structure of the gene was, you didn't know where this narrative started, right? The same thing is true about um, memory. Until Memory, as I said at the beginning, it's uh, the medium that carries information forward in time. And computing is about the processing of information. Spinning out stories about how, what the rest of the thing might look like at the molecular level or the cellular level, yeah, it's kind of a fool's game until you have a proper starting point. And the proper starting point has to be What is the physical realization of memory? Until we know that, we're wasting our time uh, thinking about the rest of it. And and what frustrates me is that I believe the tools that have been developed by molecular biologists in my lifetime are all we need to answer that question. If only I could get the molecular biologists to stop thinking like neuroscientists and start thinking like computer scientists, right? Uh, This is an information storage problem. And you have to be asking yourself, where in molecular biology are there structures that store information? Do you know the answer to that question?
0: DNA. Yeah. (laughs) Oh,
1: good. Sounds like you had bio 101, right? Okay. Every one of these molecular biologists knows the answer to that question. It's the foundation of their science, right? Uh, But you cannot get them to, uh, I can't tell you how frustrating I find this. You cannot get them to recognize that that's what memory is fundamentally about. And they're all hung up on metaphysical issues. When I I mean, as you can sort of tell, I've been arguing with Tomas Ryan about this now for several years. I first got to know him when he sent me a PDF out of the clear blue of his first, or not, well, the publication in which they showed they could make this plastic synapse (laughs) go away, and the information was still there. The email said, I think you'll find this interesting. <laughs> I read it and I said, whoa, yeah, I find this interesting. Okay, so he agrees that it's not, but if I say, look, it, but he's hung up on issues like what's a symbol and and could and, I don't mm. in the end I I sort of half understand what his problems are. He's like, he doesn't think Shannon information is really applicable. He read, he's read Dennett, who's a philosopher friend of mine. And Dennett says, oh, well, Shannon information doesn't really answer the question, because we need to have semantic information. Yeah, what's semantic information, Daniel? Uh, Daniel, when we're having beers, will more or less admit that he has no uh, defensible scientific idea of what semantic information is. He just believes it must exist and that it's not Shannon information, right? Lately in email correspondence, I think I've at least 50% persuaded him that he should abandon semantic information and that Shannon information is the only game in town. But but many, many of the molecular biologists are are hung up on what are essentially philosophical questions and meta-theoretical questions, right? Uh, Is information really relevant? In very recent publications, one of which, in one in uh, BBS, Behavioral and Brain Sciences, a fairly prominent neuroscientist, argues that the concept of information is irrelevant in neuroscience. Okay. <laughs> Whoa. That's relevant. OK. <laughs> well, this is particularly startling because a, a very widely admired book within the field is a book by four authors, all by almost all of whom I think are former physicists and therefore know their information theory. Uh, Rika is the first author, and um, another friend of mine, Bill Bialik, is the final author. The title of the book is "Spikes: Explorations of the Neural Code." Now, almost all neuroscientists will admit that understanding how they will agree that at least in some sense of information, spike trains convey information, right? I mean, that's pretty pretty basic, right? I mean, what are they for? Uh, (laughs) I think even this other guy would agree that, yeah, they convey information in some intuitive sense, but it's not Shannon information. Uh, (laughs) um, Okay, that book, is where i learned my information theory right because they bring information this question we were arguing about how spike trains encode information when i was a graduate student right but we none of us knew information theory and we would just run up against a brick wall to our understanding we say well you know it could be the specs could be the intervals between the spikes it could be the number of spikes how would you would you ever decide that well this book shows you how you decided and it decides the question. It shows so that it's the interval between the spikes and it calculates how much information is actually conveyed by each interval, right? Okay, that's serious science in neuroscience, right? Okay, this book is very widely admired within neuroscience. These are very prominent figures within the harder parts of neuroscience. And yet you have another neuroscientist Writing an article arguing that Shannon information is irrelevant in neuroscience. So that's where the field is these days.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. You mentioned molecular biology. So the big question is what do you think might be the neurobiological basis of memory? Well, <laughs> I think
1: it's pretty obvious from earlier in our discussion, right? I mean, <laughs> Okay, we want something that's... I mean, my thinking here is really pretty elementary, right? We need a structure. Whatever the medium is, whatever the physical stuff we're looking for is, its essential property is that it store information, right? That it store it efficiently, economically, uh, for a long time. Those are these criteria, right? I mean, that's, that's what we're looking for, right? all right um where do we find things i mean (laughs) biology like everything has a hierarchical structure much more so than physics right you have you have organisms you have organs you have tissues you have cells you have (laughs) intracellular structures at the bottom you have molecules right okay so where in that hierarchy is information unarguably stored, right? Shannon information beyond argument. DNA, more generally in polynucleotides, right? Any computer scientist or engineer who looks at a polynucleotide, what's essential about a polynucleotide? Well, you've got these four things. (laughs) They make a string and there are no constraints on which thing can go next to which other thing, string, right? Moreover, there's machinery for which each different string is a different message, right? In other words, the strings can be read and who's next to who is the essence of the string. And, you know, modern biology, they find these single polynucleotide polymorphisms, right? Uh, that means a big long string in which one <laughs> letter, one of these nucleotides is missing or the order has been reversed, right? And that matters, right? Uh, the, the biological results are different because we, change, we changed one letter in a, a 3000 long message, right? Okay, so so these, strings store information and the information is read. Well, (laughs) that's a start. (laughs) If you're asking where might the information be stored? Well, (laughs) and these strings are all, unless you know biology somewhat seriously, it's hard to imagine the size relationships in these things. That is, a cell is really small, right? You you think, whoa, that's about as small as it could get. Oh no, not even close, (laughs) right? (laughs) A molecule is almost unimaginably smaller than a cell is small, right? There are hundreds of billions or trillions of molecules inside every cell, right? And they're not there in some soup. They're arranged in all kinds of elaborate structures, intracellular structures, right? And the molecules themselves, this is another one of the great insights in molecular biology in my lifetime. This was not realized by anybody when I was a high school student. Those molecules, many of them are, very complex little machines in their own right. They may have 15 different working parts, right? Um, and uh, that wasn't, no biochemist thought that was true in the 1960s, right? I mean, the, this is just one among the innumerable revelations that, uh, that I was referring to when I talked about conceptual progress in molecular biology in contrast to cognitive science and psychology and neuroscience. Um, so it's, all the structure is there. And while I've got your ear and the ear of whoever's listening, there is a fantastic paper that has just been published by a brilliant young uh, molecular biologist neuroscientist named Hesse Medin Ahlapur and you can post the reference on it because i sent it to you, you can post the reference on it. So he's a very unusual individual in that he has a really deep understanding of the foundations of computer science, right? The, the, the deep theory behind computer science um, and and the different ways that computation can be physically implemented, right? combined with a really deep knowledge of RNA biology. So his knowledge in both of these realms is much deeper than mine. But it's not only what he knows, it's he has that unusual facility of mind that he can put this knowledge, he can connect one to the other. I mean, for most of us, these are two domains of knowledge that are about as far apart as it's possible to get, Right? <laughs> There are a lot of people who, who share his deep knowledge of the foundations of computer science, but very few of them know, know different yeah. shit about molecular biology, right? Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are a lot of people who have his knowledge of, uh, of uh, RNA biology, but, <laughs> but the people who know both, and it can put them together, whoa, that's very rare. Well, he puts them together in this paper, and he shows that you can build a turing complete machine he shows what no neural net this reverts back to the earlier the neural nets do not do addition right it's kind of transparent that if you can't store a number you can't do addition right okay yeah. so when most people are told that they say what <laughs> they don't do addition <laughs> and, and they claim that this is how the brain works <laughs> okay so that's why there's no neural net theory of dead reckoning because dead reckoning is basically addition and neural nets don't do addition right okay um in the appendix to this paper he gives you a complete model of how already known uh rna biology allows you to construct a mechanism entirely out of rna that will do addition using rna as the symbols right so both of the machine that does the addition and the symbols are RNA. All right. Now, look, as Hesemadeen would be the uh, first to confess, this is highly speculative, right? I mean, we're light years away from saying, well, this is what's actually going on, you think. But the point is. Mm-hmm. This is a falsifiable theory, unlike the synaptic plasticity theory, right? This is a Popperian theory. This can be proved wrong, right? The the synaptic plasticity theory, since it doesn't even attempt to answer the fundamental question, can't be proved wrong. So it's not a theory. This at least is a theory and a detailed theory. And it's built four square on the only structures that we know store information. All right, this is my kind of theory, right? <laughs> oh.
0: I was I was reading I was uh, trying to read that paper um, yesterday as well and um I thought it was really cool like so, so the idea that like just using RNA we can solve any of those computational problems. Right. And so now the problem is does the brain use the RNA in that way? For sure. <laughs> okay, so we know that um, we know that these molecules maybe be proteins or nucleic acids like RNA, they have this capacity. What experiments would need to be done to show that? And how would we know when we have found the N-gram molecule?
1: Well, um, it's kind of implicit in what I've already said, but it's a great question. So as far as I'm concerned, well, a, a non-negotiable constraint on the answer to your question is if anyone who makes that claim has to ex- be able to explain to me how the thing they've found encodes information, okay? So if, if they cannot answer that question, eh, then they haven't found it. <laughs> or at least they have no good evidence yet that they've found it. So the first answer is come back to me when you can answer that question. Okay, so so that's a really important part of um, the answer to how you've asked a profoundly important question. How would we know that we found it? And the most significant part of the answer is that, well, it demonstrably can encode information. Okay, that's a huge advance. Now, the second important thing is, in at least when one case, can you prove that it actually codes a specifiable piece of information? You have to show, look, here we have a preparation in which we know a piece of information that we can specify. We're not waving our hands here. We can say exactly what the information is. You have to show that, yes, that information is actually encoded in this thing I've found. And you have to show that there there exists. You may not know what the mechanism is, but you have to prove that that there exists a mechanism in this system that can read that information and translate it into an output. Okay. So broadly speaking, that's the scientific task ahead. But the hard part, By far the hardest part is finding good candidates, right? That is, you can't, before you can do the things I've just described, you have to find something that gives you a good reason to think you might actually have found the engram, right? What we're describing is how you could prove that it was the engram once you had found it. But first, you need a strategy. How the hell am I going to find it, right? If Gallistel is right, if Gallistel and Hesse and, and Achlagpur uh, are, uh, are right, uh, this is uh, th- these are individual molecules inside cells. Well, as Gallistel was just stressing, there are hundreds of trillions of <laughs> molecules inside <laughs> This is a needle in a haystack if ever there was one, right? <laughs> how how could we find this? Um, I actually think if I could get them past the conceptual and metaphysical hangups, most molecular biologists worth their salt, um, they can see exactly what the answer is. So uh, what I uh, this is not rocket science. Uh, molecular biologists know how to do this and they know they know how to do this because um, uh, a guy named Frederick Johansson, working in the lab of German, Heslo in Lund in Southern Sweden. He's basically handed them what they need on a platter. And all they have to realize is that, look, this guy has given us everything we need to get this effort started, right? And, and this work was a culmination of work in Heslo's lab that is his whole career, Heslo's in his 60s, right? Johansson's he's probably in his 30s now, anyway they both deserve huge credit for this as do other people like Dan Dan Anders uh, uh, in uh, Hessel's lab for this because this like almost all important efforts in science has been a group effort and uh, uh, Johansson couldn't have done it without all the work by uh, Hessel that preceded what he did when he did this as his PhD thesis in Hessel's lab. Um, uh, I'm going into all this credit thing because when they've discovered something really important, scientists get very angry if they don't get proper credit, understandably, right? And these guys have discovered something really important. The problem at the moment is to get the molecular valve just to realize just how important it is. Johansen, in his PhD thesis, basically showed beyond reasonable argument that the duration of the CSUS interval in a very simple a very traditional behavioral experiment called eye blink conditioning, Pavlovian conditioning. He showed, so we all, we know, we've known for decades that in eye blink conditioning, as in all Pavlovian conditioning, the animals learn the intervals. They learn how long it is between the CS and the US. The the CS is the thing that uh, warns them that they're about to get uh, an insult to their eye and the US is the insult. And uh, guess what they do when they're warned that something is about to insult their eye? They close their eye. (laughs) It's not rocket science, right? That's called the conditioned eye blink. Okay, but they don't close the eye, the immediate, the warning the immediate moment the warning comes, they wait, they know the interval, they've stored that information, so they only close their eye when they need to close it, namely when they're about to get the insult, right? Okay, so that's the conditioned eye blink. That's so important because the, um, the interval, that interval, that's one number, right? That's, <laughs> that's as basic as it gets. <laughs> You're talking about how to store a picture, whoa, that's hundreds of numbers are minimal, right? But an interval, that's one number. Okay, that's as simple as it gets. And in basic science, you always want to go for what's as simple as it gets, right? Okay, so he has proved that that one number is stored inside a huge cell on the cerebellar cortex called the Purkinje cell. It's one of the biggest cells in the brain, it's very accessible because it's in the cortex. If you simply look at its anatomy, anybody would say, God, that cell looks like an electronic chip. <laughs> it looks like a chip on a data bus. <laughs> and that's exactly what it is in computational terms. It's a chip on the data bus. and and the data bus supplies the signals that carry the information and the information gets stored inside that chip, right? Okay. So, Johansson not only showed that this is true, he showed that um, he he discovered the postsynaptic, he proved the postsynaptic receptor in the synapse, which is, I have, to, I have to get ahead of my story here a bit. You have to understand, first of all, that cells are a whole universe. Uh, like the, there's a huge structure inside, there are railroads inside the cell and so on. Okay, so there's all this structure inside the cell. Um, Realized at the molecular level. Then you have to understand, like all universes, there are communication um, links inside the cell, right? A process going on at one point in the cell communicates to, what, to processes going on otherwise. And those communication channels, notice we're back to communication, the fundamental role of communication. Those communication channels are mediated by what are called biochemical cascades. And biochemical cascades are the reason why I and many other pre-med students, I was never a pre-med student, but why I didn't become a biochemist, because they're a goddamn nightmare in terms of, uh, every step in the cascade is some 10 syllable long word. And it's this 10-syllable long molecule gooses that 10-syllable long molecule, which gooses that one, which drops off this bit, which gooses this one, which drops off that bit. And in a, and, and this goes on and on and on. You know, There are six of these steps between a photon exciting your eye and a change in the electrical potential of the outer segment, right? So. You know, some people love that stuff, but it drives other people nuts. But the thing is, this is old hat and biochemistry and tracing these cascades has been a part of biochemistry now for many decades, right? The methods are very well known and they're getting steadily more powerful because of all these techniques that the molecular biologists are developing. They can now visualize single molecules in these cascades. Right, And they can get the molecule to fluoresce when it says, I'm being goosed. Uh, So so they can look at what's going on at the single molecule level inside single cells. Uh, You can't imagine how mind-boggling this technological advance is since I was your age. I mean, no one dreamed that this would ever be possible when I was your age. Okay. Those are the tools one needs to... So I said, Johansson has handed them what they need on a platter, right? Because he said, look, I've identified the beginning of the cascade. Moreover, he's also identified the other end of the cascade, the the output from the cell. Look, somewhere in that cascade is the engram that encodes the duration of the interval because the signal coming in doesn't have that information. But by the time the cascade reaches the output that he has identified, that information is present in the output. Okay, look. I think any person who has any business contemplating a scientific career can think, well, wait a second. Look, this is a golden opportunity, right? You know what Ariadne's thread is? No. (laughs) Uh, Well, now you're going to (laughs) learn, it's a famous Theseus was, uh, this is a Greek myth, Uh, Theseus was um, uh, challenged to do something that uh, the challenger thought would be an impossible problem and the usual myth, the the penalty of not succeeding was death.
0: Was this the Minotaur?
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay, <laughs>
0: I remember that.
1: Theseus had yeah. seduced Ariadne, <laughs> so so he had a wow. girlfriend who <laughs> said, "Hey, uh-huh. look, <laughs> I'm going to give you this." Mm-hmm. So the problem was that once you got into the into the maze, right, no one could find your way out. Right? So even if you found the Minotaur, you'd never get out, right? She gave him a ball of thread and she said, hey, look, (laughs) just just unwind the thread as you go and you'll be able to find your way out. Okay, well, so the analogy isn't quite perfect because, but the idea is that that cascade is a thread and you can follow that thread and somewhere in that thread is the minotaur, the engram. And uh, moreover, you can know when you've got to the stage where you can know when you've got to the minotaur because up to that point, everything that happens in that cascade will not reflect the information about how long the interval lasts, right? The stored information. But everything on the other side of the n-gram will reflect that because it's already reflected at the output, right? What more do I need to explain? Come on, guys, get with it. (laughs) Um, uh, I, I can't describe how frustrating it is that I can't Uh, because molecular biologists, they all want to win the Nobel Prize. And believe me, if you actually discover the the engram and prove that you did it, (laughs) they'll give you five Nobel Prizes.
0: (laughs) Uh, And I wish I did biochemistry now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it seems like such a gold mine of opportunity. Like, why... Why do you think these molecular biologists are so hung up on the metaphysical issues?
1: If you study the history of science, you will see that scientists, although they deny it, in fact, are provably in virtually every science at about every stage of science in the history of science, we're all, our thought is informed by certain metaphysical commitments. uh, and we're incredibly reluctant to abandon those commitments, right? I mean, Einstein said, Einstein was one of the founders of quantum mechanics, right? But, but he didn't like where it went, right? And then he famously said that God does not play dice with the, the universe, right? Uh, or dice with the reality, I forget the exact quote, right? And, and um, it just, I mean, the thing that's really hard, to. Well, there are many things that are really hard to wrap your mind around in quantum mechanics, but for many, many almost all classically trained physicists, the idea that reality was deep down at the very foundations probabilistic, whoa, <laughs> that was, uh, uh, it was really hard to buy into that, and Einstein did not buy into that in uh, to the end of his life. Uh, so, and even now there are physicists. Uh, I think David Deutsch is a very eminent physicist at at uh, Oxford. Should you should take a course from him if you can? He's a really interesting, smart guy. Um, the uh, He's published a book I recently read that I think he has his doubts about whether it, if you go down deep enough, it's really probabilistic. But the, uh, anyway, uh, that's why, uh, at least the ones I argue with, like, like Tomas, he's hung up on semantic information. He's, he, he has commitments that I think he himself would confess are kind of pre-scientific, meta-theoretical or whatever. The idea that there are symbols in the brain, uh, it just is hard for him to go there. Uh, he's told me in an email I just got today, that yeah, that he just can't, he agrees the brain computes, but he cannot buy the idea that modern computer science is the only game in town when it comes to understanding computing machines. He's deeply committed to the idea that, yeah, the brain commutes, but there's some way of computing that is deeply different from the way that computers compute. Um, And that's, and I believe that, no, it's not, it's not that I would argue that it's inconceivable that we will discover uh, a way of computing that is in any interesting sense different from the way computers compute. Um, I wouldn't argue that that's inconceivable, but I, I would say, look, we're all practicing scientists, right? And as a practicing scientist, you have to go with the tools that the cultural evolution has made available to you in your time. If you can't let what you do by be driven by fantasies that there are things out there in the world that are undreamed of in your philosophy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so if you think, if you admit that this, this thing compute. <laughs> and that memory is crucial to computing. Um, Well then, by my lights, you gotta say, well, look, you know, computer, there are two miracles in my lifetime, uh, computer science and molecular biology, right? They both, I was born in 1941, right? (laughs) Computer science, Shannon published in 1948, right? computer science and Watson and Crick published in 1953, right? Um, These are two unimaginable scientific advances that have both occurred in my lifetime, right? And I think the progress in computer science has been every bit as impressive as the progress in molecular biology. And I think it's just as crazy to to, uh, ignore what the theoretical foundations of computer science, which are extremely well-developed. And the fact that as all the engineers admit, we have not created any functioning machine that does not work by these uh, principles in the now three quarters of a year old uh, history of uh computer science right uh which is employed many of the smartest people of our generation and into which many of the wealthiest people many of the capitalists have poured unimaginable sums of money because great fortunes are being made all the time right the basic the conceptual foundations haven't changed at all since world war ii right <laughs> since i was born uh since turing in 1938 which is before i was born right uh no machine has been developed that does not uh operate on the conceptual foundations that turing laid and the really impressive thing that it it, it looks like they might actually succeed it's still very unclear whether they will but i'm beginning at first i thought no way it looks like they might uh, succeed in developing a quantum compute, which will do things that none of the currently physically realized ones will do. But they're completely clear about the fact that it will rest on Turing's foundations and it will have a memory. <laughs> it, it won't change the theoretical foundations of computer science. So I regard them as at least as secure as um, the claim that, uh, that um, DNA stores information, right? Okay. Those two claims are, in my mind, you don't get any more basic than that, right? If, they, if they're not true, nothing's true in science, right? But, which is what all of Trump's supporters believe. They, they believe. If, if, if you told them that uh, Trump said that uh, he was gonna make a missile that flew faster than the speed of light, they, they would all believe it, right? I don't believe any of the things, including the foundations of. OK, so this is as secure as scientific knowledge gets. Right? So I would say, hey, Tomas, yeah, it's not inconceivable. Because after all, quantum mechanics was inconceivable in uh, 1898. Right? Uh, um, but um, it's the only game in town. You have to admit that. Um, <laughs> so in thinking about the problems we're interested in, it seems to me you have to start from that game.
0: Yeah. You just have to use what we know right now. Um, could we, uh, so this idea of molecules as a memory storage is a little bit abstract. So can we talk about it a bit more like, so would each of these N-gram molecules uh encode through some structural properties a number or a, a symbol and then how would the computations would the, would the computations be like inside the cell or across neurons
1: no they'd be inside the cell i mean so you're asking of course a, a very good and very appropriate question but it's going to have a complicated answer you you've got has some Hessem, he's called, his, his nickname is Hessem. You've got Hessem's paper, right? <laughs> That's not bedtime reading, right? <laughs> it's, he's laying out what the answers to your questions could look like, right? And whereas as he very freely admits, it's very unlikely that the answer actually looks exactly like what he's laying out, right? But if he and I and the others who think like we do, if if what we think in general is true, then that's what the answer to the question you're asking is going to look like, right? And what that means is, well, okay, that's a great question. Um, come to my seminar that I'm gonna give next semester. And by the end of the uh, semester, you, if we're lucky, if we're both lucky, you may actually understand the answer to the question you've asked, right? I mean. That's the kind of question we're dealing with, right? There are going to be a hell of a lot of details, all right? Uh, all of RNA biology, for example, right? What's an enzyme? What, what's a SNP? What, what's the five prime end? What's the three prime end? What's... <laughs> how do uh, polynucleotides make complexes with proteins and on and on and on? It's going to be complicated, right? But the answer to the basic question, I'm not sure that this is what you're asking. Is it obvious to you how you store a number in a polynucleotide?
0: A polynucleotide? Um,
1: a string of, uh, of, code, of, yeah. of nucleotides. Right?
0: Do you mean like in the codons you can specify the symbols?
1: Oh, okay, it's not obvious. And, and no apologies. That's right. I mean, probably not obvious to most of your most of your listeners, but trust me, to any computer engineer, it's completely obvious, right? Because they understand how you store a number in a bit register. And once you understand what a bit register is and you look at a polynipleic data, you're saying, wow, hmm, that would make a terrific bit register, <laughs> okay? I mean, so once you've grasped the foundations of computer science, right? Okay, so at the foundation of a computer are bit registers, right? A bit register is just an array of switches, okay? So how do you store uh, a number in an array of switches, right? So so a bit register is just a string of switches, right? And each switch can either be closed or open, okay? Then a switch is just something that has two stable positions, right? When you throw the light switch, it's in one position and the lights stay on, when you throw it the other way, yeah, okay. So
0: like a binary encoding,
1: it's a binary encoding. There you go. Okay. And switches implement the fundamental element in a binary encoding, which is either you're in this state or you're in that state.
0: Okay. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. So the next thing you need to learn is that why the base of the numbers we're familiar with is 10. You can make a base from any number you like as long as it's greater than one, right? Yeah. And in particular you can make a base out of 2, right? Okay. Everything we uh, you understand about a base 10 number also applies to base 2 numbers. But it's sort of completely obvious how to encode base 2 numbers in switches because if it's a 1 you throw the switch this way and if it's a I mean a, a base 2 number is just a string of ones and zeros, right? All right. If it's a one, we throw the switch to the one position. And if it's a zero, we throw the switch to the zero position. OK. All right, so now let's look at a polynucleotide. A polynucleotide is a string of nucleotides. OK. There are four of them. So it'll
0: based here, on see, it will be basically.
1: That's fabulous, because it's a four-position switch. <laughs> that mm-hmm. means each nucleotide can actually encode two bits. <laughs> right? Not one bit, but two bits but let's put that aside for the moment because there's certain technical complexities arise there. Mm -hmm. Given that we have these nucleotides and given that they can be put in any string you like, that there's no constraints on which one goes next um, and that all the machinery for building the strings is already there inside the cell. We know all that, right? All right, let's take, as you may remember, I can never remember, A, C, T, G. G, yeah, right, okay. So let's take the A nucleotide and we'll call that one. (laughs) Okay. And we'll take the C nucleotide and we'll call that zero. Do I need to say more? (laughs) All right, we're gonna build strings out of A and C. (laughs) And they're gonna encode numbers in exactly the way they're encoded in a modern computer. Yeah. Yeah. You wanna know how obvious this idea is. There are several labs around the world that are working really hard on using bacterial DNA as the memory medium in conventional computers. Because any engineer looks at it and says, Jesus, polynucleotides they're, they're, from an engineering standpoint, they're awesome stores of information. (laughs) You go back to those criteria I listed and they score a 10, on every criterion, right? <laughs> uh, they enable incredibly compact uh, stories. There are calculations of what's in principle, re- how, how many bits can you in principle, remember there's a close connection between information as a computer science concept and information as a physical concept. And therefore it's a physical question how much information how many bits can put it be put in a cubic micron at ordinary temperatures and pressures? Right? and people have calculated that and the storage density for dna is within like 10 percent of what they <laughs> uh, that's uh, pretty astonishing it's not clear that we will ever have a physical medium that's appreciably better than that right okay so so whoa, that's a 10 when it comes to how many bits per cubic micron, right? How about stability? Oh God, I mean the stability of DNA. Compare, I have all these compact disks, right? I can't read half of the goddamn things because that technology was not all that thermodynamically stable, right? The the bits have evaporated, right? So I can't read the, the disks. Uh, okay. Can you still read DNA uh, years later after no energy input? Hey, are you reading the scientific journals, right? I mean, there there was a recent publication that used DNA from bones to say this kid, this baby, had a Denisovan father and a Neanderthal mother, or maybe it was the other way around. (laughs) All right this kid was born 50,000 years ago.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: This information has been buried in a cave somewhere in Russia with no energy import for 50,000 years. And you can still read a hell lot of information from it, right? Mm-hmm. That is mind-boggling thermodynamic stability, right? Um, well, right And it goes on like that, right? You can ask, How much energy does it cost to add one nucleotide? Because if you're building the string, right? uh, That's uh, how much energy per bit? It costs one ATP. Mm. You have to, in biology, that's an almost unimaginably small amount of energy, right? For comparison, uh, you can ask how much, how many ATPs does it cost to send a spike? Because in neural nets, they're sending spikes all the time. In neural nets, they use the spikes to do computing. Well, it costs 8 million uh, ATPs. (laughs) 8 million to send one spike. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, so, Mm -hmm. So if you're doing it at the molecular level, it's incredibly more efficient almost unimaginably more efficient Uh, this by the way is what made uh, Jean-Pierre Chang'e so angry (laughs) he had never heard this argument and and he had no response right and it made him incredibly angry
0: (laughs) yeah I mean even like in in Oxford art like in the lectures it's always like just the idea that they teach is that it's all synaptic plasticity and memory and there's like a small minority in the community that believes it's not but it's not very relevant and they don't don't even talk about it um and the reason the um the argument against um that was that so um the, the the Timescale of which we form memories is very fast. So I have, I'm able to remember things from a very short while back, Um, but the way you sort of encode memory in intracellular molecules seems to be a much slower process than like through synapses. Um, How would you reconcile with this?
1: Well, the argument is simply false. Uh, And I'm very surprised they make that argument because and when I first published some of these ideas, I gave the relevant figures. Um, uh, I, I looked up, that's a wonderful thing about the internet. <laughs> I looked up, uh, I, I just pointed out that the cost of, uh, of adding one nucleotide uh, is one ATP, right? Uh, well, you can look up on the internet, what's the rate at which um, polynucleotides are constructed, right, how many, how many nucleotides can a cell add to a polynucleotide string in one second? Yeah. Uh, the answer is about a hundred uh, okay it's, in other words it's uh, uh, it's uh, adding nu- it can add nucleotides at uh, every nucleotide for on average most spike trains are much slower than that, right so. Uh, I mean, 100 spikes per second. Whoa, that's really fast, right? Um, so every interspike interval at 100 uh, spikes per second, you can add a nucleotide. The intracellular machinery can add a nucleotide, right? All right. So the next question is, well, how many how many nucleotides does it take take to store a number? Huh? Uh, well, <clears throat> not very many. <laughs> uh, but again, we have to get into the technical side of well, how do you actually store numbers in bits and what's the efficient way of doing it and so on? And how how accurately are the numbers stored? Because uh, if you ask how the bits to take a store a number, the, the first question is, well, how accurate do you want it to be, right? Um, And the next question is, well, how, so we have a lot of numbers stored, but they're not stored very accurately. Most of them are only stored to one or two bit accuracy. Oh, well, if you're only storing to one or two bit accuracy (laughs) and you're storing at uh, one bit uh, every 10 milliseconds, then uh, you could record a number in 20 milliseconds. Is that fast enough? (laughs) I should think so, right? (laughs) So, So the assertion is simply false. It, it, it rests on on erroneous intuitions about the the time scale on which the relevant molecular biology proceeds and i'm and and one of the ways that i hammer this home and again this was in the original publication so i'm it's a i'm surprised that they make that argument because in my mind i definitively refuted it with another <laughs> with another, with the following example. So we talked about these biochemical cascades, right? (laughs) And when they're described, you think, Jesus, that sounds slow, right? (laughs) Okay, so now we have to learn another, a few other biochemical neurobiological facts, right? So how does vision progress? Well, vision progresses when a molecule called an opsin absorbs the photon.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah,
1: that's the first stage in one of these cascades, okay, and the the energy contained in that photon makes the molecule, the molecule is kind of like a jackknife, when it gets hit, when it absorbs a photon, it flips open, and when it flips open, it starts a cascade, right, this, <laughs> it knocks something off of the next protein, and that, that, the next one, and that does something to the next one, and that does something to the next one, and that does not, so, Okay, I used to teach this cascade. I can give you the names by looking at my notes, (laughs) but you don't need to know the names. There are six steps in that cascade before you get to the outer segment of the rod membrane, right, at which point the final step changes another molecule, which changes the polarity of the rod outer membrane. Okay. The right outer membrane, we're still in the first neuron, the first cell in the whole endless chain of cause and effect, right? Mm -hmm. Now, an electrical signal, the membrane change, has to propagate through the cell until it reaches the synapses. And then it has to modulate the release of transmitter from the synapses, right? All of that sounds slow, doesn't it? (laughs) <laughs> but remember, this is the first stage in vision. Yeah. Okay, now you have to connect this. You see what, what makes Aquaphor a genius is his ability to connect different things he knows. And that's an ability that tends to be missing in many neuroscientists. So, okay, so many, many neuroscientists know what I just told you, right? It's, it's part of your introductory education. Okay, now you have to connect this with a, uh, with your the fact that the, you read the new newspapers and you probably have played some tennis at one point in your life, right? So if you do those things, you know that uh, some people can hit Djokovic's serve at least some of the time. Actually, another tennis aficionado tells me that, ooh, I think Federer's serve is even faster. Uh, anyway, both of them have an old, for an amateur like me, <laughs> By the time I realized they'd hit it, it would have been past my racket, right? So, I mean, I have zero chance of hitting their serve. But there are guys out there who can hit that serve, right? Not only hit it, but hit it back in an interesting part of the court, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Nobody can hit it blindfold. (laughs) Okay. I haven't actually made the calculations, but I'm sure that you need to start moving your racket within... At most 150 milliseconds uh, after uh, the serve leaves his racket, right? Uh, okay, you can't hit it blindfold. So that whole capacity depends upon that biochemical cascade that I described. And that cascade is just the start. <laughs> right? Yeah. So so people have completely erroneous intuitions about. How long these molecular biological processes take. Um, the same is true. That same course where they gave you this um, erroneous idea. Uh, my wife gets that. Um, they probably touched the Hodgkin-Huxley theory of uh, axonal conduction, which is one of the foundations of neuroscience, and another great advance, <clears throat> which happened before, most of which happened before my lifetime. <clears throat> okay. What happened during my lifetime is the actual discovery of the molecular gates that were in this theory. There were a lot of people, by the way, biophysicists whom I knew who didn't believe the theory because they didn't believe that there could be gates, molecular gates that did what the theory claimed the sodium and potassium gates had to do. Uh, So one of the things we've learned and actually been able to measure is the opening of that gate, right? Now, The action potential, as you probably remember, that happens on a timescale of a millisecond, right? Of Half a millisecond for a pretty fast action potential, right? You wanna know how long it takes those gates to open? It's measured in nanoseconds. <laughs> I mean, these, <laughs> these molecular processes are very much faster than the, the bigger processes that supervene on these molecular processes. If you think about it, that has to be the case because in order for the higher level process to happen, a great many things have to happen at the molecular level. Mm. Mm. So that argument is just nonsense. Mm.
0: (laughs) Yeah. You've made a very convincing case against the synaptic plasticity hypothesis. Why why do you think um, people don't seem to... Uh, Why do you think people are ignoring this? (laughs) Uh, uh, Well,
1: another thing that, a a quote that is uh, often brought up by people who read the history of science and are interested in this kind of question. Um, um, Like most such quotes, this isn't actually exactly what he said, it's a pithier version of what he actually wrote. But Max Planck, a very famous physicist, uh, um, Einstein built on his works and so on, (laughs) he he remarked once that um, science progresses one funeral at a time.
0: (laughs) I always found that super dark. Like, did he mean the the death of scientists or ideas?
1: (laughs) He means that... What do you mean? Oh, it's interesting that you don't perceive what that means. (laughs) That's fascinating. Okay, well, let me explain. Because I think every working scientist immediately laughs they know just what it means. What it means is by the time you're 40 years old, most scientists are pretty locked into whatever it is. Not necessarily what they were taught because many of them, particularly the more original ones, have gotten beyond what they were taught. But usually in your 20s, uh, in your 30s, you embraced a, a set of concepts which really become the foundation of how you think about your science and what you actually do in practicing that science, right? So those, those that conceptual framework, that's a part of your identity, right? and And also, because it's the foundation of how you think about all the problems in your science, you're incredibly reluctant to abandon that conceptual framework, right? I mean, you'd have to start over. You you wouldn't be a famous scientist in your 40s. You'd be an undergraduate, right? You'd have to rethink everything, right? hey, look, we're human beings, we're, we're not gonna go there, right? You, you can't start rethinking everything in your 40s. All right, so you're not going. I, I mean, if you study, uh, I, I mean, this isn't true of all scientists, right? Don't get me wrong. Uh, Eddington, for example, who was much older than Einstein, fell in love with Einstein's theory almost immediately and, and so on, but there were many other scientists who who hated it and hated it the whole life. Uh, there were there was a Nobel Prize winner in Germany who called this Jewish science, and he said he said he said we Germans have to get rid of Jewish science and, and embrace German science. Right? That's the kind that's the kind of crazy. This was a Nobel Prize winner, right? This wasn't some schmuck. Uh, <laughs> Well, clearly he was a schmuck, but he, but he was a Nobel Prize winning schmuck, right? <laughs> okay, so, so what Max Planck was referring to is that, by and large, big changes in the way people think about things in science, they have to happen at when you're young. <laughs> and the guys on top of you who won't give you a job for thinking like that, they have to die. <laughs> oh so, so that, in order for you to get a job and be able to promulgate your ideas right so all of that is captured by the the very pithy statement that science progresses one funeral at a time um, so that's that's one reason is the deep reluctance of most of the people who are in their prime right who are the who are the eminent practitioner, I'm well beyond my prime now, right? <laughs> I've, been, I've been retired for five years and I didn't retire until I was 75, right? <laughs> In Oxford, you're forced to retire when you're 65. Right? <laughs> okay, because they think you've had it by 65, right? No, that's not fair. They, they <laughs> wanna make, make room for the young people, which is good. But, <laughs> my dumb. Okay, so that's part of the answer. Another part is another wonderful quote by a close friend and, uh, and very eminent cognitive sci- scientist who just died, Lila Gleitman, who was an incredibly witty person. Everybody loved Lila and among other things because she was funny as hell. And <laughs> so people are quoting her all the time. And uh, one of her often quoted remarks is that empiricism is innate. <laughs> that, that is. And, and what she means by that, this is connected to my references back to Aristotle. If you study the history of, of almost any science, they almost always go back to Aristotle. And that's because Aristotle was a very smart guy and he thought very hard about things. But what he came up with were the kind of things that seemed intuitively reasonable to a very smart person 2,500 years ago, right? Um, and those intuitions seem totally reasonable to uh, essentially everyone who thought about it for the next 2,000 years, right? I mean, throughout the Middle Ages, Aristotle in science, or what passed for science was God, right? Uh, whatever you wanted to argue, you had to show that actually this is what Aristotle argued first. (laughs) Then people would say, oh, then it might be a good argument because it goes back to Aristotle, right? But, and this is true in every science, But if you read the history of science, what you see is in every one of the sciences that actually made progress, eventually they basically abandoned Aristotle. (laughs) (laughs) They had to learn to think in ways that were fundamentally different from Aristotle and much less intuitive. Um, And um, you see that very clearly in physics and chemistry, and you see that in all the sciences that have made substantial conceptual progress. Well, the associative theory empiricism, that's Aristotle's theory. And like all of his theories, it has enormous intuitive appeal. It just, when you're taught this as an undergraduate, which is what you have been taught and what generations before you have been taught, right? It just seems reasonable. It seems like uh, it appeals to your, if someone asked you what the answer you say, I don't know. And then you hear the appearances and you say, ah, yeah, that's gotta be right. That makes all kinds of sense, right? It just feels right. And that's what Lila captured when she said empiricism is innate. It means some inborn way of thinking about, and actually I can identify what it is. Look, it's obvious that I said memory is full of facts. Well, where did the facts come from? Well, they came from our experience, right? (laughs) So, and when we think, what do we do? Well, we put together facts Well, the facts came from our experience and associationism is just a theory about how we put them together. So yeah, it's gotta be a great theory, right? Um, And uh, that's what's captured by uh, Lila's remark. Now, when you start to study really carefully in experimental psychology, even in Pavlovian conditioning, uh, how we actually, how animals, how rats, mice and Bees and ants put the facts together. Then you start to say, Jesus, you know, these, these animals, they put the facts together in ways that aren't remotely captured by this notion of uh, associative bonds, right? Um, so what that theory didn't capture is the brain's contribution to learning, right? That theory is entirely focused on on the world out there. And it ignores how the facts actually get put together, right? Um, this is what makes Chomsky's work so famous among those. I mean, you wanna discover whether someone is an empiricist or a, or a, uh, or a cognitivist or nativist, um, just ask them what they think about Chomsky. <laughs> all the nativists worship him like me and all the empiricists hate him. Um, that, so he pointed this out about language. He'd say, look, language isn't about the words, it's about how you put the words together. <laughs> well, duh, you know, this just one of the things, it's so basic that it takes a genius to point it out, right? <laughs> oh, okay, and he, he showed beyond argument that, you know, the way the brain puts the words together isn't remotely explained by the experiences it's had right that's you know Skinner thought it was explainable by the experiences that you had and Chomsky wrote this famous review that in the eyes of most people simply (laughs) left Skinner a smoking ruin right (laughs) Just, just showed that he had no theory at all right it was utter nonsense right that he couldn't begin to explain how the brain of a how a human brain puts the words together, right? Okay. You know, like the connections are still trying to claim that someday they have to admit that they're still not there, but they believe someday a neural net will put together the words together in the way in which the human beings actually put the words together. Right? But my description of the ant navigation is it tells the same story, right? When you say, look, the animals go out and they wander all over the place, they discover something, then they go straight home. And we can prove that they do this by dead reckoning, by a very simple experiment, we just displace them. And by God, they run the compass course that they would have run and they stop where they should have stopped. Even though it's totally unfamiliar territory, their previous experience, except for the dead reckoning is totally irrelevant. I don't know. the associative story has nothing to say about that, right? They just throw up their hands. Um, and you say, well, this is an example of how the brain puts experiences together in order to generate behavior. And uh, your empiricist theory is completely helpless in the face of this example. And this is an ant. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> You're telling me, you think that, I just reviewed a paper in which they think the empiricist theory can explain all of human intelligent behavior. And I said, wow, that's remarkable because for some reason you neglect to mention dead reckoning and dead reckoning occurs in ants. (laughs) And no one thinks that the empiricist theory can explain dead reckoning. So are you actually want to argue that um, the human brain is explainable by uh, uh, a theory that can explain the ant brain? I don't think so um but that's the that's the answer to your question that people are staggeringly unwilling to give up things that lie at the foundation of the way they think about the phenomenon and you're mm-hmm. a teacher when you're teaching this stuff i mean if they would have to totally revise the curriculum if they. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, hey, come on, that's a lot of work, <laughs> and and they'd have to actually learn some information theory, right? And almost none of them know any information theory, and you know, I'm. They're saying to themselves, "Look, I'm 55 years old. I'm not going to go there." <laughs> so.
0: <laughs> yeah, do you think that? In terms of that stubbornness to not, uh, not accept paradigm shifts because you've worked your whole career on something, do you think that that is something that can be changed, um, like societally oh, if uh, we uh, change the structure of how we give like prizes and fame and grants?
1: Can't be changed. <laughs> <And human laughs> I'm nature. a nativist. I, I, think, <laughs> I think Violet was right that. That goes so deep in the human biology that it's no hope of changing it. (laughs)
0: Okay, so that that will be a fundamental flaw of how science is just going to (laughs) work.
1: Like science is a human undertaking, right? Yeah, we're not. Science is a human enterprise, and you can't divorce it from really deep properties of the way humans and you know all god spreaders think right (laughs) um uh, yeah yeah i don't think so you just have to live with it and you have to try to convince people Mm -hmm. and you asked at one point uh, am i making any progress and (laughs) uh, i thought well it's not as if the world is about to all come out and say, oh, he was right. No way, it ain't going to happen. But the fact that uh, I got three different invitations for podcasts in the span of a couple of weeks, <laughs> uh, <laughs> all from young people like you. <laughs> I said, yeah, make it some part. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, they're being told that it's heresy, but at least they're being told that it, is, it exists and, like all young people, they're curious to know about these heresies, right? mm-hmm. <laughs> That's progress. Up until mm-hmm. now, no one was even telling them that there was another way of thinking about it, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah. Well, um, in terms of like artificial intelligence, so, as you mentioned, all of the deep neural network stuff are based on synaptic weights. Um, and actually, like, there has been some research on now actually like going backwards so using deep convolutional neural nets too because they've been suggested to mimic the neurons in the visual cortex of the brain and so the idea is that you can use convolutional neural nets to study mechanisms like perceptual memory perceptual learning and stuff like that do you think that if memory is not in the synapse that this approach is completely doomed for failure
1: No, because it's quite a separate question. No, I even think that, in fact, insights have emerged from that. And in fact, uh, those efforts are being used as tools by um, some of my, actually, many of my friends who work in that area, whose work I think is profoundly interesting and important. But it gets very technical, but um, but, uh, one example of this is that, so there's a big division of uh, opinion in the community that knows enough to really have something resembling a a respectable opinion about um, the extent to which what's going on in the neural nets actually reflects what's going on in the brain. Okay, some of the leaders in that effort are are believe very strongly that it does. There are other equally eminent people who, including by the way, many of the engineers who are actually down there in the trenches writing the code that implements this stuff, uh, who are actually very skeptical that this captures what the brain is doing because they're so sensitive to the gap between uh, what these things actually do. I mean, they do some impressive things, but there are huge gaps between what they actually do and what we know the brain does. So these are the guys who know that, look, you know, this computer in Ellen's car, it doesn't recognize the shape of a stop sign. <laughs> and, you know, they're not stupid people. And they say, you know, <laughs> that's potentially pretty serious. <laughs> and, and they also know that about adversarial images, in fact, I don't think I've mentioned them, but some of the engineers at Google who are working on this stuff published a paper that has given a lot of people pause. This now goes back four or five years. The title of the paper was Deep Nets Are Easily Fooled. (laughs) And they showed images that looked nothing like what the deep net said they were. And the deep net was sure that they were that thing, right? And they showed other images. They, they would show one image of the deep neck said, that's a leopard. And you would look at it and say, yeah, that's a leopard. They showed another image. They say, well, what do you think this is? And if you looked at it, you'd say, well, why are you showing me this? Because that's a copy of the same picture you already showed me. <laughs> and they what they were doing was fiddling with the pixels that you can't even notice, right? Yeah. And the computer looked at it and said, that's not a leopard. <laughs> With high confidence in both cases. Okay, <laughs> Houston, we've got a problem. Um, the uh, so so there's division in the community about the answer to the question that you asked. But even among the people who are skeptical, actually to a certain extent, particularly among the people who are skeptical, that doesn't mean that you can't do useful things with what's going on in these nets and. Um, a very, very smart guy named Simon Selle, uh at NYU and who works in vision science and who's done really path-breaking work in that cutting edge stuff. And who's computationally like all, all the people who do cutting edge, you can't do cutting edge work in vision without being knowing a hell of a lot of advanced mathematics and computation they took advantage of this to actually sort of experimentally test um, the question that you've asked. Uh, and in ways that were illuminating about. So they said, well, look, we, since we understand the representation, the eigenvectors, this gets very technical, that these computers basically end up with And since we know computationally how to go about distorting the eigenvectors, that is how distorting the computer's representation of an image, and we can make these distortions and see how readily the computer detects it and see how readily human beings detect it, right? And this is a test of whether how the computer recognizes these images, models the way the, com- the human being recognizes it, right? And they show that if the, the computer flunks that test, right? The, the, uh, uh, humans, the distortions that give problems to humans are not the distortions that give problems to the computer and vice versa, right? But another lovely thing was they took a lot of what's been learned about the neurobiology of vision Um, And they learn from both the neurobiology and the psychophysics. In talking about neural nets, the neural net people always claim that they're building on what we've learned. And that's that's got some truth in it, but it's got a lot of falsehood in it too. They're they're, they're not making anything like uh, full use of what we've learned from psychophysics and electrophysiology about the stages of vision. And that's partly because it's too nativistic. You'd have to start building in too many structures that they don't want to build in. Um, And um, they showed that a model that used what we've learned about the system did much better job of modeling human subjects uh, than did the net, right? So, uh, for me, that's a profound lesson. You can't, the psychophysics is the behavioral side of it, right? You can't ignore the psychophysics and you can't ignore the uh, electrophysiology. And uh, because the electrophysiology shows that there's a cognitive map just as much as the behavior did, right? And a cognitive map is anathema to these deep neural nets for reasons I already explained, right? We've got no memory and the map clearly has to reside in the memory.
0: Yeah. And if we do find these n-gram molecules, do you think that it would affect the way that we think about artificial intelligence? Oh, to oh, 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 oh. bear shit in the woods? I mean, Is the Pope Catholic? I mean,
1: oh God, yes, of course. It, it's, it's like the discovery of DNA. It would It would transform the entire conceptual framework in neuroscience. Uh, 50 years after that discovery, neuroscience will not remotely resemble the neuroscience that you're being taught, um, any more than the biology that they're teaching people these days, resembles the biology that I was taught in uh, the early 1960s. They didn't even mention DNA in 1960, because it was still too, it was only being discussed at the graduate level, right? It was only seven years after, at least in my memory, they didn't mention it. If they did, they sure didn't go into it very much (laughs) Uh, because it was only seven years after Watson and Crick, right? And there were still uh, biologists who hated what Watson and Crick had discovered and were deeply opposed to it, Um, uh, and who wrote bitter, Reviews uh, full of <laughs> full of polemic uh, about why this was bullshit, and we <laughs> so they weren't going to put that in an undergraduate course, right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, could I end with some personal questions? What what do you, what is your favorite part about doing science? Thinking,
1: (laughs) thinking, I'm totally serious. I I love to think, (laughs) and you know, from what I've observed, I would say most people do not love to think (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. because most of the time when you think you don't get anywhere. (laughs) <laughs> right. I, are, I often lie down, some problem arises and I I lie down to think. I lie there for an hour and a half thinking about it, and by the end of the hour and a half I'm more confused than I was when I lay down.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> all, all I've done is confuse myself even further because I could see that there was one problem and now I'm thinking about it, there's another problem. And now I've got two things I don't understand, and, <laughs> and, and so on. And I think most people, even many scientists, they, first of all, the scientific pressures are really all against thinking for just the reasons I've talked about. Particularly in modern science, you got to get a grant. you got to turn out the articles. you got to okay. keep the lab running. Um, But you got to satisfy all the goddamn regulations, fill out all the paper, grade the students' exams, and so on. There's precious, it takes real force of will to carve out time to just lie there and think. (laughs) And uh, mostly, it's really hard to do that. You've got to be very disciplined to to say, look, I'm going to spend some time thinking, even if I don't get anywhere. So, and I, but I love thinking. I, I, every now and then, things get clearer. And it's unbelievably, for me, the, the feeling, it's as good as sex. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> the feeling when, when you finally, there's some problem that you're so confused about and now it's clear. Oh, that feeling is wonderful but it doesn't come often. So anyway, that's, I love thinking and I love data analysis, uh, particularly modern data analysis. The, the computer has transformed data analysis. Uh, I mean, And for me, this has been transformative. I have done any number of things that were unthinkable with the technology that was available when I was a graduate student, because now, it used to take an hour to make a respectable graph right (laughs) these days I might make 50 graphs in 10 minutes right I I might write code in half an hour that lays out 50 different graphs and I can study the story that those graphs are trying to tell Um, and I enjoy writing code and I love looking at graphic data and thinking, so what the hell's going on here, right? Um, and that that's what data analysis is about. Uh, I mean, the kind of data analysis you get when you pay for it, it isn't really about that. They run some routine tests and they don't think about, they don't really look at the numbers. They don't graph them in 10 different ways. They don't think about what's the story that they think, look, these people are paying me to give them a mean and a variance. I press this button and I gain a mean and a variance, so I earned $50 for giving these idiots a mean and a variance, when if they knew anything about programming a computer they could press the same button I pressed, Um, and it's a cheap way to make a living right. Mm -hmm. But if you're, if you're into serious data analysis, then you think look these data have a story to tell, and we're not sure what that story is. And so we need to really look at these data and we need to ask all kinds of questions and graph them every way we can think of and compute everything we can think of. And so I love that process. Um, The way a photographer loves, an old photographer, (laughs) loves developing negatives or or positives, right? Where you watch the image emerge in the bath, right? Yeah. The story, Oh, Their data usually have a story to tell, and it's usually a richer story than the people who gathered the data ever imagined. And the modern process of data analysis, when it goes well, the story emerges. I love that process.
0: Mm. So right now, you know, let's say all these intracellular mel- memory molecules in your brain they're busy encoding information and all that one day at the end of this journey all of these n-gram molecules they'll stop encoding information and there'll be no way of retrieving them so what do you think is the meaning of all this oh oh, oh, come on i'm
1: not not gonna i'm not all that introspective, right? I, I don't <laughs> worry about the meaning of life. I just enjoy it. <laughs> uh, the, uh, uh, I mean, I've been extreme, extremely fortunate in my life in almost every respect. And, um, yeah, life is to be enjoyed. Uh, and I, I don't get any enjoyment from worrying about what the meaning of it all is. So I just enjoy <laughs> it. <laughs>
0: yeah fair enough yeah so last question is what advice do you have for young scientists uh learn
1: learn or be willing to learn learn enough mathematics so that later on when there's some problem that confronts you you already know enough so that you can learn whatever additional mathematics you need to know i mean mathematics is infinite so You're never gonna learn even a small part of it, but there are foundational, you know, you have to learn the calculus, you have to learn linear algebra, right? You don't really belong in the parts of science that interest me if you don't know the calculus and the linear algebra. So learn it, right? Uh, Go take the introductory course. I didn't take the introductory course in linear algebra until after I had tenure Really? (laughs) on my first sabbatical. I went to another university. Had a, a, a brilliant mathematician who was a friend of mine. That, and I took the undergraduate course in linear algebra. <laughs> um, and because I had discovered that practically everything I was working on, they used linear algebra, <laughs> and I didn't understand what they were talking about. I, I just, this has to stop. Look, right? uh, so I took the course in linear algebra. <laughs> Really, one of really funny things is that linear algebra is often used by mathematics. This is terribly unfortunate. It's used by mathematics um, departments to separate the sheep from the goats. Uh, the, the sheep are uh, 98% of the uh, undergraduate population, and the goats. Uh, the few who might actually become engineers or physicists or mathematicians and actually make serious use of mathematics so they need to really learn some mathematics. So linear algebra is often used because it involves lots of proofs and so on. And when it's taught that way, as it very commonly is, they don't teach you the applications at all. You would never have a clue that, hey, we're really talking about geometry here. And we're talking about the foundation of how computers work. You wanna know how a computer does something? Basically, if you don't know linear algebra, you're never gonna understand how a computer does something. You wanna know how it rotates the images when you're using an illustration program? You gotta understand that there's a a matrix, the rotation matrix that does that, right? Otherwise you you won't have a clue. Okay,
0: Mm.
1: the the Mm. reason that, the funny story is this. The course I was taking was being taught in that way. He never said anything about what this meant, what you could use it for. Uh, uh, He he gave no clue that a huge part of this came from the fact from Descartes insight that geometry mapped into algebra, right? Um, And finally, and so it makes it a very frustrating course because uh, it's all proof, and I don't like proof any better than the next person. And finally, some kid at the back raises his hand, and he says, does this have any applications? <laughs> the professor said, I don't know. <laughs> I almost fell out of my chair. I thought he should be arrested on the spot for pedagogical malpractice. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> OK. So, so this was being taught like so much intellectual masturbation, right? I mean, and, if, and you would never know that it was the foundation of the world we live in, right? I mean, it was mind boggling. Okay, so I got that mm-hmm. off my chest. But the, the, you, however bitter the experience, you've got to take linear algebra and you've got to learn a programming language. Get out, get with it. It's not that hard. It, it's a skill that will serve you in your future. I guarantee it. At least if you do anything remotely connected with uh, the with technology or, or science, uh, but even the arts for God's sake. I mean, you know, half the galleries I go to these days are doing, you know, half the art being created is being created on computers by artists who really understand what the hell's going on under the hood, right? Um, so, or if, if you're working for Walt Disney, right? <laughs> I mean, look, this this is everywhere, right? I mean, computer technology is just everywhere. And, uh, it, and, and most of the people who are using this technology have no clue what, what's going on under the hood. And if you're one of the few people who actually knows what's going on under the, under the hood, it gives you a huge advantage. Uh, you can do things yeah. that the other people, the guy sitting next to you can't do. And, um, yeah. and, and you, under, you know how to ask questions that someone who has no clue about how it actually works, they, they would never know to ask that question, right?
0: Yeah. By the way, for those interested, like um, Simon Sally, who you mentioned from NYU, yeah. he, he has a great uh, course on YouTube, like teaching math, uh, from the basics for just what theoretical neuroscience so that was that's a really I didn't
1: of, know that and you're right that's who I was thinking of yeah yeah hero Simon Selly was in my lab as a high school student
0: oh wow
1: <laughs> I'd like to say this is of course total bullshit but when we're together and other people around I say I taught him everything he know <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh wow <laughs> wow yeah, I actually really enjoyed that course. Um, I also really, um, I really enjoy math, and I want to go into theoretical neuroscience. But the neuroscience the course that they teach here at Oxford is very non-quantitative, very mm-hmm. cells and systemsy, and um, yeah, I've sort of regretted not doing a more quantitative undergrad.
1: Think there must be an undergraduate course in information theory, probably taught in the course. Go take it.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh,
1: yeah, or just read Spike's explorations of the le- of the neural code. They do a fabulous job of laying out the foundations of information theory, particularly as it applies to neuroscience, mm. in the first several chapters of that book. Um, and then they show you how it works. And then they put it to work on answering serious questions in neuroscience. Mm -hmm. so i recommend that book very strongly Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i'll link i'll link that book in the in the notes yeah randy it's a huge honor thanks for spending your time with me today i hope you find the molecular biologists
1: well i hope there'll be some young ones headed into molecular biology who listen to your podcast right so first of all you're playing into my agenda but second of all as you can tell i enjoy it i mean i enjoy talking about this science which is my whole life really uh well that's crazy i'm I'm a married man with wonderful child and grandchildren and so on but and i love to ski (laughs) and sail and so on there are many pleasures in life but still it's hugely important to me so it's it's it's, i love it thank you randy yeah thank you